Welcome to another episode of My Drunk Movie Theater. I'm Kyle Sutton. I'm Trisha Campbell. And we're going to start off, I have bones to pick with every last damn customer I had all weekend. <laughs> Let's get started, shall we? So I actually wrote some of these down. Uh, I didn't write the order they came in, but I will just tell you the stories as they happened. Um, I know you've dealt with the exact same BS issues. Yep. Matter of fact, we're going to talk about one that you and I had to kind of semi-deal with together because it happened to you beforehand with another customer. So we've got an auditorium that does not start on time at all. Yep. Um, we've also got a couple of auditoriums where the pre-show does not work like it's supposed to, so it doesn't create the right audio, and so we have to switch it over to make it work, and if we do that, then we wind up... Guys, the, really? the sound channels are supposed to switch on their own, and for whatever reason, it's not at the moment. For right now, just two of our theaters. Right. And if we go up and we manually switch it, it won't switch back to the movie. So we would have to go up multiple times per showing to yeah. switch it, and that's just not feasible, especially when you're busy. The vast majority of people, when they come out and they're like, uh, there's no sound for the pre-show. They're really worried there's not going to be sound for the movie. So when you say there's two sound channels, they're not mixed. Switching automatically, we have it left in the, the movie sound channel. They're like, oh, okay, cool. And they'll go back to the movie, and that's the end sure. of it. Uh, but now and then, you get the ones that like want to throw a giant fit. Anyway, we've had... Mine wasn't a giant fit. Yours was. But uh, anyway, you were there for, for the one I had to deal with. And really, I didn't even get to talk to her. She came up, talked to one of our frontliners, and basically said, hey, we're in this auditorium. You know, there's no there's no sound with the pre-show. You know, I mean, and of course we we tell her, you know, it's it's time for it to start anyway. So I think I sent you to go on ahead and go up and start it. Probably. And so that happened while she's walking. You know, as I'm getting ready to go down there and find out, you know, from the frontliner what they said, she kind of walked away. Frontliner, I go, hey, what's going on? Other than that, and she goes, well, she said there wasn't any sound, and she felt like she wasn't getting what she, you know, what she paid for. I don't know about you guys. I get infuriated enough as it is when I've got to sit through commercials on live television. I really don't like it, and I know it's actually a source of revenue for our theaters for the, the advertising that's done on those pre-shows, and I get it. Really don't want to sit through it. And I didn't think it's, much before. It's not like we're ignoring it. We have had discussions with our techs on it. It's just, it's a more complicated issue than one might think. Right. Because it's not just our techs that are having to deal with it. We also have to get in the, the company that controls that pre-show. Yeah. There's a lot of moving parts to try to get coordinated to get this fixed. And honestly, they all kind of have bigger issues going on. Right. If you're sitting here as a tech going, okay, I have this theater that their pre-show doesn't have sound. Versus one that an entire projector is down and they can't show any. Well, you can guess where their priorities are. They exactly. want to make sure movies are playing. So it kind of gets pushed back until they have a lull in problems to deal with it. Right. So she said that. Like, I don't feel like I'm getting my money's worth. But she went on about her day, went back to the movie. We had it started. The end. The one you had to deal with on your own. I had a guy come up to me. And it wasn't even during the pre-show, it was after his movie. He had sat through his entire movie. And after the movie got out, he came up and he asked, he saw me and said, are you a manager? Well, yes. I'm in dress clothes with a tag that says manager and keys hanging off my belt. Yes, I'm, I'm a manager. And he's, he starts talking about the, it wasn't even the usual auditorium they come out of. Right. 
It was, a, it was the other one. So there's one in particular that always has this issue, and there's another one that is kind of intermittent. And he yes. was the one that was intermittent. So he was in he was in the one that has intermittent issues. And he had apparently, I think he'd come out, I don't even know for sure that he'd come out during the pre-show complaint or not. He didn't really specify. But either way, he had sat through his entire movie. And after his movie ended, he came back to talk to me and he starts talking about there was no sound during he seemed confused i don't think he quite understood the difference between pre-show and previews he kept kind of conflating the two no matter how many times i tried to specify but he complained that there was no sound and i explained the problem and that we were working on it we were in touch with with text and whatnot and he kept saying he didn't he wasn't straight up asking for a refund but he kept saying i feel like i deserve some money back Okay, well, that's not asking for a refund. That's, I don't know, you know. That's but, a whole different level yeah. of entitlement. That's like you you ex- you don't want to straight up ask for something. You want me to offer something, which, no, I'm not going to. So I explained. I was like, I'm sorry that you were upset. However, you pay for the previews mm-hmm. and the movie. He goes, well, there's no, but, but, but there was no movie. There was no sound for those previews. I said, no, there was no sound for the pre-show, the ads. Right. You had sound for the previews and the movie. That's what you pay for. So you had sound for those. And he kept going back. And again, he wouldn't straight up ask for a refund. He kept saying, oh, I think I deserve some money back. So finally, and I kept kind of skirting around the issue just like he was. And finally, this was going back and forth for a while. And at one point I said, well, you had sound for the previews and the pre-show and that's what you pay for. And he agreed with me. So then, To me, that's conversation over. Right. But then he again said... But there was no sound for the pre-show, so he feels like he deserves money back. So finally, I just said, I'm sorry, I can't do that. Right. Which is not a lie. He's watched the entire movie. He's not getting a refund at this yeah. point. Maybe, I probably could have given him some readmits and passes to come back. But at this point, his argument is a little weak. Like, say he... the entire movie without a complaint. Right. Without problem. Not a complaint. I don't know if he complained to the pre-show. Because this was... His movie had started before my shift started. I came, this was right after I'd gotten there. Shift change had happened during his movie. Right. So I wasn't even there to when he had the initial complaint in the first place. So I don't even know if he came out and complained or not. But either way, he he paid for the previews and the movie. And he had sound and picture and everything was fine for what he paid for. He got what he paid for. But he wants money back because he was slightly annoyed with something that happened before. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's not how this works. You're yeah. not getting a refund for this. No. And he was like, "Really? You can't do anything for me?" And so at that point, when you're that entitled, I'm just like, "No, I can't." I'm sorry. You sat through the entire thing. You sat through the movie. And you just admitted that you paid for trailers. Yeah. And the movie. That's it. Those two things work throughout. You get nothing. Even even if you are. He, he tried to throw that. Well, don't you think your advertisers would be upset? I'm like, I'm sure they will. However, we've been in contact. With text. Right. About this issue. Yeah, it's not like so nothing's our, being done about it. If our, if our company that provided our pre-show was that upset about it, they would have said something by now, and they would have done something about it by now. I don't even know if it's their fault, or I don't even know what the issue is. Mm-hmm. Like, but either way, we've been yeah. in contact about it. We've, we've told our techs about this, and they're aware of it. Yeah. So I don't know what else you want me to do. Right. I'm not making multiple trips upstairs to switch back and forth a sound channel when... 99% of our customers only care that they're going to have sound during the pre-show. Yeah. The, and, movie, the pre- previews in the movie. And most of them will tell you, will, will say, you know, once you tell them, 
it's fine. It's just, it's the pre-show. It runs on a separate sound channel. Yeah. Once the actual movie previews start, you'll have audio. It'll be fine. If there is an issue, we are going to keep an eye out just in case because yeah. we're not going to just sit there and, and let it slide. But it's been happening long enough. We know what it is. Yeah. There's not a whole lot of sense in worrying about it. So, yeah. But and the I'm, guy... I'm not potentially walking away from a line of people just to switch over a sound channel for a pre-show that I'm going to have to go back upstairs exactly. to switch back for the movie. Right. Because what happens if it's time for the movie to start and I have a giant line? Yeah. I have to make the choice of do I risk making an entire auditorium mad because mm. what they want isn't working or do I potentially piss off an entire line of people yeah. that are waiting that I'm helping yeah. when I could have just ignored it. And that one person would be upset that they're missing sound on the pre-show. Right. That's what it all comes down to. When it comes down to business, people are like, well, I'm a customer. I'm entitled. Not really. We're kind of looking to see what the solution is. It's going to keep the most amount of people happy. Right. So if one person is upset that a pre-show sound isn't working versus an entire auditorium that doesn't really care, that only cares if the movie is working, I'm going to do what I can to make sure the movie is working. And I'm not going to worry that much about that one person that's upset about the pre-show sound. Exactly. Because if I go and I make that one person happy and risk making the entire auditorium upset, I then have to readmit that entire auditorium. Right. Versus that one person coming back and being upset. And I spend five minutes dealing with a 70-year-old white man that doesn't understand how same sound channels work. Or the fact that he got what he paid for. That just wants to sit there and make my day worse. Because right. he was upset. Yeah. No, there's there's a sense of, uh, like I said, with a lot of these customers, a sense of entitlement. And I get, you spend a lot of money going to the movies. We know it's not cheap. We, we hear it every single day. I had one guy say, you know, oh my God price of a popcorn is almost my mortgage and i'm going Roughly. yeah get over yourself we know it's expensive who in this day and age does not understand that movie theater snacks are expensive right and they, the part of that is, is that they, you know these people go to sporting events and say the same thing oh god yeah they do and then they you know but, like um, if i go to a royals game and i'm gonna go buy a beer i go in fully knowing that the beer is gonna cost an arm and a leg exactly and i accept that yeah. and i make the choice before i walk up there am i gonna pay you know, a ridiculous amount of money for a simple beer. Right. Am I going to just go without? Yeah. Because I know it's going to be expensive and I accept that it's going to be expensive. Right. Yeah. No, it just, it just, it, it just sticks in my craw that they want to sit there. And the thing is too, is they, they complain about this. If you're going to complain about anything, complain about stagnant wages because I mean, we, the reason the prices are going up is because nobody's spending money at the box office or at the, at the concession stand. Concession stand is the only place where you make money. If you're not making enough to come to the movies, I hate to say it, you should maybe reconsider, maybe not come as often. Because a lot of these people that do complain are regulars. Yeah. You know, and it's like, my God, I'm spending this much on popcorn. Well, I hate to say it, cut back. Yeah, like, I I don't want to tell our customers not to buy things. Right. For any of you that don't understand, movie theaters don't make money off of ticket sales. They just don't. Yeah. People complain about ticket prices, but... We are kind of, when it comes to ticket prices, we're beholden to the studios. Yeah. We literally have to have a minimum, I think it's average ticket sale overall. So when you complain about, okay, the matinee prices are rising. Well, if we have too many matinees at the cheap matinees, it drags on our average and our average has to be a certain amount. I don't know the specific numbers. That's above my pay grade. Right. But either way, we have to sell our average ticket price 
has to be a certain amount. Yeah. And that's not what we charge. That's what we actually sell. Yeah. So we have to keep it at a certain price. So if we're getting too many matinee tickets, not enough evening tickets, we have to raise our prices to keep that average up, blah, blah, blah. But because honestly, we are slaves to the studio. Yeah. Because if we do something that pisses off a studio and a studio withholds a, mo a movie from us, our business is in the toilet. Yeah. That almost happened once. We, I don't remember what, oh, I actually do remember what it is. We pissed off WB, Warner Brothers. Okay. And this was when the first, I think it was the first Hobbit was going to come out. Okay. And we pissed them off so much that we almost didn't get the Hobbit. Yeah. They were going to withhold it from us until we rectified what it was. This was, this was a previous company, so I'm not going to air dirty laundry, but yeah, they can do that. The they company's they no longer existent though. So, I mean, is it really airing dirty laundry at that point? Kind of. <laughs> and it, it doesn't even matter. We pissed them off. They were going to withhold the movie from us. We had to quickly rectify the situation to get the movie because they were going to withhold a major title from us. Yeah. That would have sunk us. Yeah. It, it would have done major harm. Yeah. So the next time you want to complain to your, your local theater manager, understand that there's a lot of stuff that's out of our control. Yeah. You, you want to complain that the movie you want to see is in a small theater and is sold out while there's a big theater that's, like, empty. Okay, well, we have contracts. Maybe instead of complaining to us, maybe you go complain about certain studios having giant monopolies that give them the power to basically do whatever they want, even if it makes us suffer. Not I, I don't know what she's talking about because uh, I, for one, welcome our mouse-eared overlords. Um, how we make our money. Is concessions. So keep that in mind when you complain about it. And I've told people that. And there's people that are like, well, I know. Okay, then why are you complaining? I mean, you're right. literally complaining that how we make money costs too much. Right. And then there's me like, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Maybe think of that next time you complain that popcorn costs us pennies and we charge seven or eight dollars. Exactly. We have to make money. We have to pay. Think about think about the bills that movie theaters have. Electricity alone. Mm-hmm. Think about how much electricity those projectors take. Electricity. Good Lord. I was going to say, electricity, rent, water, supplies, general overhead, employee salaries, yeah. all that good stuff, just to keep you guys entertained. So I acknowledge, like, like I said, I hate to say, if you can't afford it, don't go, but it's kind of yeah. common sense. If you can't afford it, don't go. We're kind of the middleman. Yeah. We're there providing a luxury service. I mean, to an extent. I mean, not nearly as luxurious as, say, going to a concert where your yeah. tickets are 150 bucks a pop and your beer is going to be 20 bucks. I will say that. At least our, our liquor prices are fairly on par with any bar that you go to in town. I agree. Yeah. Uh, our liquor so prices really aren't that bad. They're really not. Um, and, I, and that's coming from somebody who's been over to a couple different movie theaters where the liquor prices are outrageous. Is it more expensive than if you go by yourself? Yes, of course. It's always going to be. Yeah. But is it more expensive than if you go to a professional sports event? No. No. They're going to be way more expensive. No. I actually had some... Or a concert. Concerts are way more expensive. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm going to say, you can easily spend 10, 11, 12 bucks on a beer. Uh, let's not even get into cocktails. But, yeah. Just remember, when you're going to the movies, that's what you're paying for. You know, you're paying for the, the trailers. The trailer and the movie. Mm -hmm. That's it. The pre-show is... I kind of go ahead and say, quote, quote... A, uh, an added bonus. 
I don't know if there's any bonus to getting advertising shoved down your throat. I don't like it. It's honestly the one thing I love about Alamo Drafthouse is that they don't do that before the movie. But they still have something playing. But they still have something playing. I will say, I did go see a movie in said auditorium that doesn't have pre-show sound. And I'll admit, it's a little awkward. Yeah. It's it's abnormally quiet. Right. And so you hear every conversation that goes on. It, as someone that enjoys people watching those, good people watching. Oh, absolutely. I never realized how much time big groups take deciding who sits where. Yeah. I mean, you're about to sit in a dark room for two hours and right. not talk to each other. Does it really matter who you sit next to? Just, right. Just figure out which seats that you have tickets for and just sit and watch the movie. So, you know, you bring up a good point. So with, with regards to the awkwardness of no sound... When I was growing up, you and I kind of have a, a difference in how often we went to the movies. You didn't go very often. Um, my grandmother used to take me damn near every I week. I didn't go with my family. I went. Yeah. I think with church once. Yeah. I went once with a friend when I was in like sixth grade to see Titanic. I'm so sorry. And then I think I went once as a toddler. I think those are the only three times I went before the theater I now work at opened when I was in seventh grade. Yeah. And I was old enough that mom trusted me to go. On my own with friends. Yeah. Because I was a good kid. It didn't cost problems. Yeah. Well, you know. Nobody likes a bragger. No. So my grandma used to take me, uh, not every week, but every, basically every big release that I wanted to see. So when it came to growing up, I saw part of Jurassic Park because I got scared. You know, we came into it in the middle. <laughs> we came into it at the part where, where the T-Rex is attacking the vehicles. And I'm like five. So yeah, so I didn't get I didn't get a build up to that point. It's just straight up dinosaurs are wrecking shit. So yeah, you can be scared now. So I only saw it at that point. So I really didn't see Jurassic Park until I was a kid. But uh, I do remember going to that. Uh, but you know, it took me to see that. Took me to see Men in Black when it came out. Um, I mean, Super Mario Brothers in theaters. Like I, if I could count, if I could go through the list of movies I saw in theaters, uh, it we'd be here all day. I think but I, I think I saw I know I saw a Disney movie, but I I think it was Beauty and the Beast, given the timeline of how old I think I was and uh, what came out that year. I'm not 100 percent confident on that because I really don't remember any of my other grandparents. Trip. Yeah, I saw Airbud, the original. Yeah, with uh, my church. It was like a Mother's Day out program uh, gotcha. in the summer or whatnot, and they took us all to see Airbud, and then I saw Titanic. And that was all in the really old, like, tiny fourplex that was in town. That yeah. apparently was really shitty, but I don't really remember it well. Right. I wasn't old enough to understand it being gross and run down. But everyone tells me it was gross and run down. I don't know. Yeah. And then this one opened, the one I work at. And we saw the Pokemon movie because I was babysitting. Nice. I like the Pokemon and movie. And I had to sit down on the floor because it was, it was full. Yeah. Um... So, yeah, so uh, Great Mouse Detective was one of the first Ooh, Disney movies. Nice. It was on a re-release in 92. I do remember that because my other grandparents took me to see that. But So my grandmother used to take me to the movies all the time. So I distinctly remember back in a time where the pre-show, and even up until I was in high school down in Harrisonville, that movie theater, it was all just a slideshow. There was no audio with it, just the music that was playing overhead. Yeah. And it was never the the pop hits that we're getting now or like new music from new artists. It was always that just yeah, just general stuff. So I don't remember Airbud well enough to remember what the pre-show was and Titanic. I just remember walking in and we didn't understand the movie had started because you know the beginning is them like finding the wreck and so we're like, oh, it's just a little documentary about that Titanic. We haven't missed anything, and then we just that was that was the movie. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. But, I was like 11. We didn't know any better. Yeah. But but that's my thing, though, is I'm, I'm sitting there going, you know, people are complaining about a lack of sound, and that's awkward, and this, that, yeah. and the other. And I'm going, you know, for a good long while when you had those pre-shows, was it, it was quiet. And, I mean, you actually had to make conversation with the people you went with uh, or people that you met. I became a manager in 2011 mm-hmm. after I graduated college. And I remember even then, um, I remember who it was. It was someone that I would known that I'd worked with that had since transferred to be a GM, GM at another theater was still using slideshow. I believe it. Pre-shows. Yeah. So. Yeah. I, I know that was a thing because mm-hmm. they just sit there and change it out. Yep. Um, so yeah. Okay. Rant number two. Anyway, my other rant, actually it's a two parter. First off, you go to our theater, it's reserved seating. Every movie theater is going this way. Okay. I, there's not much I can do about it. And if you're going to complain about it, I want you to start complaining to your local sports venue or theater or concert, concert venues, anything like that, because uh, unless you're constantly buying general admission tickets to something, it's all reserved seating, and you are expected to be in that seat. Now, yeah. once once showtime, like GA tickets anymore. Like maybe it's because I'm getting old, but I don't like having to be there ridiculous amount of hours beforehand just to get a decent spot. Yeah. I'd rather just buy my ticket, right? Know where I'm going to be. And be there. I will do it if it's considerably cheaper than buying a reserved seat. And it's a band I really, 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 really want to see. Case in point, U2 at Arrowhead uh, a couple years ago. Basically, it was either $70 a ticket to be general admission and Mm -hmm. get there early, which I was going to take off anyway, get there early and get a spot by the stage, Mm -hmm. or pay $300 to sit in the lower bowl. And I'm going... That's fair. Yeah. I just, I can't stand that long. Right. My back starts killing me. As oh. much as that sound, makes me sound like an old person. It's okay. I have history back issues. Right. Leave me alone. Um, but like, I'm that person that when, when we went to see Simple Plan on their, uh, mm-hmm. I think it was 15th anniversary of their first album a couple years back, it was only GA tickets. Because it was a small dingy club in Lawrence. I went with my best friend and a, a friend that he used to work with. And we got there, and I was like, okay, there's already, like, it's already half full, like, close to the stage. And that's when my best friend was like, hey, there's a balcony. And I'm like, you know what? I'm all about that. So we actually ended up in the front row of the balcony. I'm like, I don't have to be close enough to touch them. I'm not 16 anymore. They're like, oh, my gosh, Pierre touched my hand. I'm never going to wash his hand again. Not that person anymore. Right. So I'm like, you know what? I can see better. There won't be, like, I won't be crushed. I also can't deal with that many people. Yeah. I can't. I mm. Mm. Yeah. Too much anxiety for that. I hear you. So, like, balcony was calmer, less crowded. I was right up against the front of the balcony, had a perfect view. And I'm not ashamed to say that both A and I were like, Pierre looked up and waved at us. I'm happy. 16-year-old me is, like, having a meltdown right now. Right. I'm not even ashamed to admit that. There you go. Yeah. uh, So I walked out of the venue going, I thought my celebrity crush on him was over. It's not. It's not. It's still there. It happens. So, anyway, so I had customers come up the other day. And of course, they're they're buying tickets. They got a group of like nine people, and they didn't buy tickets in advance. And it was for Aladdin, which Background is still doing for well. For those listening, we have been reserved seating for easily almost over, two over almost two years, yeah, well over a year and a half. So this is not something new that people are still right. figuring out, right? Although I'm starting to wonder if it's because they're coming from one of our other theaters that has not gone to that yet. Could be. Um, but most of them do. Yeah. 
So everything's going that way, though. It's just like the itty bitty theaters that don't, which I guess they could still be coming. Yeah. But even then, like even the itty, a lot of the itty bitty theaters are starting are to starting it. to at least one or two screens are reserved seating. Yeah. The bigger ones are reserved seating. Right. So they come up, they buy nine tickets, and I have to spread them out. So I've got like two here, two here, two here, three mm-hmm. here, whatever it is that breaks down to. Theater shows full. It shows full until after the movie, or right up till showtime, and it stays yeah. that way. And I'm double checking it because people are still coming up trying to buy tickets. Yeah. This head of this pack that has come up <laughs> comes back and he goes, uh, "Yeah," and it's right at showtime. It's like two minutes before showtime, and he goes, "Yeah, we uh, well, it showed sold out, you know, when we came up here and bought the tickets from you, but there's nobody in the damn seats." And I'm going, "What? The seats are sold. That's what that means. Whether or not they show up." That's not my problem. That's not my fault. Now, he goes, well, if nobody shows up in those seats, can we move to them? I'm like, yeah, you're going to wait 20 minutes. I'm like, when I told him he had to wait 20 minutes into the movie before he could move, it was just like a, really? And I'm like, yes, really? Because if I have to come back back in there there. to move you out of seats that people already paid for, I'm going to be annoyed when I already told you. I was going to say, ain't nobody having a good time, period. Because when people have to come out and tell us there's people in the seats I paid for Nobody's happy. Yeah. So first things first, buy a reserved seat. Sit in your damn reserved seat is what it comes down to. If you have a big group, plan ahead. Order your tickets in advance. As soon as you decide what you want to go see and when you want to go see it, log on and buy your tickets. Yep. It's that simple. Period. I know the people are like, why well, don't want to pay the the, sur- the service charge? Whatever. Okay, but if the tickets are available to purchase online, chances are if you go up to the building, you can buy them ahead of time. Yeah. Too. And I tell people that all the time. Yeah. If you really don't want to pay that dollar whatever surcharge, come up to the theater. Yeah. Well, I don't want to drive. Okay, well, if you don't want to drive and you don't want to pay the surcharge, I can't help you. Yeah. Then you're beholden to whatever's left. And chances are, if it's a Friday or a Saturday night, we're going to be 95% sold on everything. You're not going to have to see yeah. left. And you can't yell at me. I've given you options and you don't like the options. Not my problem anymore. Exactly. So on top of that, so... Make sure you buy your tickets in advance, plan ahead, be ready, especially for the reserve seating theaters. Like, I don't know. Like, did, did you really enjoy camping out for seats for Star Wars Episode no. 1? No. Nobody enjoys camping out for seats for anything. I don't like sitting in the hallway for four hours. Which we did for Force Awakens. and Which I we did. And I'm not saying I regret it. I'm just saying I yeah. didn't enjoy it. Especially right. since I wasn't prepared for it. It's because you were sitting next to me. It's fine. I get it. <laughs> so, but but like, I have the option of either... Picking my seats ahead of time and having those assigned seats versus showing up four hours in advance to make sure I get said seats. I'm going to pick the the reserved seats every time. If you're right. telling me I have to pay a couple extra dollars for those reserved seats, fine. I will do that. Yeah. Okay. So the other part of this rant. I had another set of customers come up the other day, Sunday, to buy tickets. And it's a woman and her two boys. And she's wanting to buy tickets for her two boys, her and her husband. Except they don't want to buy four tickets. They want to buy three tickets. This would not be a problem if one or even both of the boys was under three. But they weren't. They were six and eight and are fully capable of sitting in that damn seat on their own. Even like four, I might. I was going to say, if they're four, they look small. a little bit. Yeah. I'll work with you. If you need a seat and like this is the only showtime you can get and there's like it's the perfect amount of seats except for you've got this itty bitty kid that's just over the age limit. Yeah. Put them in your lap. I'll, I'll work yeah. with you. you. So you're getting a freebie today. 
this one, on the other hand, they were six and eight. And so I tell the woman, I'm sorry, they have to have their own individual seat because we have to charge them that admission for their, their price range. And she goes, well, they've now, never, they've never wanna, done if, that before. If you want to sit in a, if you want to pick a random seat in another part of the theater and then have them sit in your lap, I can't really police that. Right. Whatever. But you still have to at least pay for the person. Right. You have four people and there's a seat, section of three together and one off someplace else. And you think they can fit with you as long as they're not like yeah. a teenager or adult. I bet teenagers try to pull that on me. No, no. If you have like a six-year-old and there's not enough seats, but you have three together, yeah. you can make it work. Okay. I'm going to pretend like you're actually going to sit alone and I'm going to move on from there. But if you're wanting me to not charge you for that fourth, no. Yeah. No. That's no. Yeah. So real quick. So there's only three seats left, so I can't even put all four of them together in the theater. So it doesn't really matter if I try and fudge it or not. Fact of the matter is, I don't have room for you. And so she goes, well, you can't just, just, you know, they can't just sit together in one seat. And I go, no, they're not supposed to. I said, we have to charge them the admission for the child seat for the demographics for the studios and all that. I said, plus, we'd be over Don't ask me to put a seat in a handicap spot. It ain't happening. Yeah, no. Do you have a chair that I could? No. No. I don't. That's for wheelchairs. Right. You don't have a wheelchair. So no. Well, then Hubby comes up and decides he wants to argue and goes, "Well, they've done, you know, they've let us do it before, and y'all need to get on the same page." And I go, "Okay, well, who was it that did that for you?" Well, I don't, I'm like, "Okay, well, then I'll talk to everybody about it. We'll get on the same page." All right. So, so if you walk up without the kids there and say that you have one small enough, choosing the little step up is no. All right. So yeah. So we're yeah. So basically, if you're if you're gonna try and pull that, don't just pay for the damn seat and be done with it. Because like I'm not about to argue with about with you about admissions at all. Pulling the someone else did a force card is more likely to get employee in trouble, trouble than it is to you which Exactly. Because we're going to say they're not supposed to do that. I'm sorry. Yeah. You. Yeah. So, and if you can't tell me who it was from the get-go, well, tough shit. So now I'm definitely not helping you. So, all right. So you had one more rant before we go on to anything yes. else. So I'm in box office this weekend and an older lady walks up and she says she's not sure if she's in the right place. She wants to make sure. And we're like, okay, what, what, what are we supposed to be watching? You know what happens? We have another theater in town. Sometimes people get the two theaters confused, whatever. So she she walks up and she goes, well, we're seeing that dog movie. Dog's Journey? That was my immediate first thought. And there was Dog's also Way Home? The, the, my, Dog's Purpose? My frontliner that was in box with me was also her first thought. Dog's Journey just came out, or we just lost it, I think less than a month ago. Yeah. It's only been like two or three weeks. So of course... That's my first thought. That's my frontliner's first thought. We both say, I'm sorry, we don't have that movie anymore. Yeah. We've had several dog movies with dog in the title. Like, we had two in the last, like, two months. So we're like, I'm sorry, we don't have that movie anymore. She's like, oh, well, well, what about the other theater in town? Okay, well, we're 16 screen and they're 7 screen. So they lose movies faster than we do. So chances are they don't. However, there is another theater and another chain that will not be named. 20 minutes away that has 20 screens. So they might have it. And she, this, this lady is one that has a tendency to ramble. So she keeps talking and I don't, couldn't even tell you what she said. Cause I was just like, I don't have this movie. I don't know why you're still talking to me. But eventually she starts talking about, she says something about, I don't know what she says, but that pets movie. And I was like, wait, are you talking about secret life of pets? She goes, Yeah. I was like, well, yeah, we have that movie. And she goes, well, a dog is a pet, isn't it? Okay. No, a dog is your best friend. Here man. is my rant for the day. 
The one of many. Well, most of them have been yours. Yes. I just chimed in. This is my specific rant. Okay. Know the title of the movie you're going to go watch. There is very few things in our life more frustrating than a customer that walks up and wants tickets to a movie that they can't tell us what it is. Especially a multiplex. We have a lot of movies. You can't walk up and be like, oh, I want a ticket to that one movie. Okay, you got to give me something to work on. Give me a partial title. Give me an actor in it. Give me a plot. You can't walk up with some generic thing like the dog movie right? and expect me to know that you're talking about Secret Life of Pets when we just had a dog's... I think Dog's Journey was the last one. Yeah. Or especially if there's movies with... We have multiple movies with the same actor. Yeah. That has happened. Mm-hmm. Um, especially there was one summer that Joseph Gordon-Levitt had like three different movies come out and they kind of overlapped. Um, or I remember the world, the world's end World's End came out at the same time that this is the, the end, end re-released. And so people would literally walk up and they would say, we want to go see the, that end of the world movie to which we would reply. Do you want this is the end or the world's end? And we would get a blank look. Yeah. Okay. Are you wanting Seth Rogen American stupid humor or are you wanting um, Edgar Wright, Simon Pegg, Nick Frost British humor? And they'd still give us a blank look. Yeah. And half the time people would end up in the wrong movie and then come back out and complain. That's not my fault. Right. If you can't articulate to me what it is you're wanting to see, I don't read minds. You have to give me enough. I'm not even asking at this point for the exact perfect title. Just give me enough information that I can figure it out. If people walk up to me, like someone walked up, I happened to be in the bar this weekend, and someone said that Samuel L. Jackson movie, and we're like, what? oh yeah, Shaft. Shaft is out. Cool. Got him a ticket to Shaft. He was on his way. Like, just give me enough information to go on. Right. But even better... Know the title of the movie you're going to watch. It's not that hard. So I'm going to point this out to you. I'm about to be that kid at the at the sleepover again. I just want to point out, this is obviously a big issue for you. Not just, yes, it is important. You've already ranted about this on our show once before. That's how bad it pisses you off. Because it's a never-ending problem. <laughs> it's true. Actually, all these problems we rant about are never-ending problems. Some of them are like one or two customers every now and then. This is an almost every... At least once a week. Every, every week, if not every day. Yeah. There's someone. And I will say, the older the customer, the less they tend to know the titles. But that's not even... Yeah. That's not even all the time. Sometimes it's the younger people who are like, I don't know. I want to see that one movie. Read my mind. Right. I can't. I wish I could. Yeah. It would make my life so much easier. But no. Yeah. I don't. Yeah. I just wanted to point that out to you. At least if you mispronounce it, I'll get a chuckle out of it and I'll get you into the right movie. Right. Yeah. Specifically looking at you, Le Miserable. <laughs> that French movie. <laughs> it's like, not French. It is French, but it's not French. It's an English, based on an English musical, but based in France. I'll give you that one. Here we are, being a French title. And just like that, we are now both being kids at the sleepover. All right. uh, (laughs) We keep using that phrase. I hope people are John Mulaney fans, because if you don't understand that reference. Go look up John Mulaney. Yeah, just just go watch John Mulaney, because we will reference him. He is our guy. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back.
Um, all right, so let's go into box, box office news. Three new releases this weekend. Well, for us, new releases. Um, not a one of them, nor did the rest of the box office perform up to muster. So let's just dive in. Men in Black International topped the box office charts at number one with $30 million. That's pretty low. Compared to, I think, the original 20-some-odd years ago, 22 years ago, uh, cleared at least 50. Hi, Riker. Are you, are you hot? Sorry. If you hear our dog, my dog panting, That's he's, he's been outside all afternoon. Uh, all right. So, and, of course. But, yeah. So, it, it was even, and it was even lower than Men in Black 3. So, much lower. So, the original was 51 million. Men in Black 2 opened at 52 million, and Men in Black 3 opened at 54.59 million. This one opened at 30 million. I'm not sure we really stood out at all. We didn't. Hey. Um, Like our giant screen, we did not sell out at all. We were lucky if it was 75 to 80% full. Right. Which usually, we always say we sell out every show. Sell out may be a slight exaggeration, but not much. It's usually like 95% sold and all that's left is like random single seats that no one wants. Right. But for all intents and purposes, though. Our big screen was maybe 75% full on the biggest show. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Um, and then we had a specialty screen that had basically the good seats taken and all the floor seats no one wanted. Yeah. And then we had a regular screen that. I think it was the fullest, but still was maybe 80% full. Yeah. Like, I don't right. recall turning anybody away from Men in Black. Yeah. The one, I mean, I was only boxed one day this weekend, but still. I right. don't recall really turning it away. Yeah. Riker! <laughs> really, guys? <laughs> All right. So, internationally, though, the film brought in about 73.7, so it did much better overseas than it did here. Uh, um, number two, Riker, quit being a number two. All right, so number two, The Secret Life of Pets. How fitting is that? The dog starts barking when I'm about to start talking about Secret Life of Pets, too. Uh, at 24.4 million, Aladdin drops to number three at 17.3. And then we have a huge drop between the, the number three and number four slot. Rocket Man at number four with 9.4. We Three new releases for us. One of them was a limited release last week. So I'll get to that here in a second. Does. I know. And then number five is Dark Phoenix. So that rounds out up our top five. With the new releases, however, so Men in Black was number one. Shaft came in at number six for its opening weekend. Uh, which is, and not even, didn't even clear nine million. It's sitting at 8.9. Uh, late Night was one I of our... I think it did better at our theater than yeah. kind of overall, but that's not unusual for that demographic in our theater. Right. Um... Yeah, so it, I mean, we were selling, yes. Um, Late Night was the uh, one of the other new releases, which, again, was the limited release last week, so. Made me sad. There, there, our sales for it, there was only two people on the last show Friday night. Oh, no. Like, like, two people walked up as it was starting and wanted tickets, and I pulled it up and was shocked to see that no one had bought tickets for yeah. it. Oh, no, the fact that it was in one of our, our big six is just astounding to me, because yeah. it should have been in the smaller theater, like a much smaller theater. Maybe sad because it looked good. Yeah. Uh, no, I still want to see it. And it's actually, uh, of the three new, well, four new releases that we, we got, it's still the highest review. 
Yeah. Uh, and then the next one, the last one, is The Dead Don't Die, the Bill Murray zombie flick with Adam Driver. It actually did much better at Art Theater than I was expecting. Yeah, it opened to $2.5 million. So even with our stuff going on, it did not do well. I had to chuckle it. I had a couple customers walk up and buy to it that were like so stereotypically who you would think would go see it. Mm-hmm. Like he had like a spiky emo haircut straight out of the 2000s. Nice. Wearing like a bow tie, like Ugh. classic, like late emo hipster. And she was just like covered in tattoos and piercings, like black dyed hair. Yeah. And they walked up and I'm like, they're going to go see Dead Don't Die. And I'm like, Dead Don't Die. Oh, they were nice, course. but I was just kind of chuckling at like, Right. You're walking stereotype. I'm sorry. Yeah. I hope you're, you have a happy life. Happy life though. Yeah. So any major takeaways from that? Like for me, I'm sitting here going, look, I know that it was a men in black movie without Will Smith. It's the first time it's been back in like seven years, but even then, like it hadn't been back, been around in almost 10 yeah. years with men in black three. And it still opened decently. Didn't open great, but it opened decently. I think there wasn't enough time to make it nostalgic. Like, in between the original movies and mm-hmm. this one. Like, Jurassic Park coming back was like, oh my gosh, like, I remember that. Like, it was just weird, because yeah. Men Black wasn't that much after the, the Jurassic Park movies. But still, like, there was no nostalgia for Men in Black. Right. Which is what probably would have fueled that more than anything else. Like it did with the Jurassic World movies. Right. But, I don't know, it's I, it's like people weren't asking for it. No. No, no, I don't one, think no one really wanted it. So when it came out, people were just like, mm, okay. Yeah. I guess I'll go watch it. I loved the originals. So, right. Like, uh, for me, I can honestly say I'm surprised Shaft didn't do better just because Samuel L. Jackson. Yeah. The movie actually did genuinely look funny. And I actually watched it last night instead of Dead Don't Die. I enjoyed it. I can see where people would have issues with it, with some of the jokes. Because um, there is a lot of. I'm not going to call it homophobic, but very much old school dad sitting there questioning whether or not his millennial son likes women. Um, and, and again, it's probably part of that demographic. I don't know. As I was sitting there next to Humphrey last night. Which, it, it to me, that depends on how they play it off. So they play it off as, oh, he's old fashioned and doesn't understand. Which would be kind of, I would accept that a little more. But he's or straight. just played off as a, ha ha, his son might be gay. No, no, no. It's very. It's, Haha, his son might be gay. Uh, no. no, no. It's very. It's very much in in the former than the latter. But of course, it's Shaft, which you know, if you know anything about the Shaft character, womanizer. Yeah. You know, old school, cool. You know, yeah. but very much of a different time. Problematic of this in this era. Exactly, and they kind of play on that too. So, but there, it's kind of kind of fun to watch the the two generations, which eventually turns into three generations of Shaft, mm-hmm. kind of merging together. Um, but yeah, like I said, the jokes, the jokes didn't bother me, but I could see how they would be problematic for some people. But yeah, the, the son's definitely not gay because he has a love interest, but like there's, there's this whole running gag about, you know, uh, again, you know, he's kind of set it up. So Shaft Jr., JJ, as he's called, gets raised by his mom because mom can't deal with Shaft's lifestyle as a cop getting shot at every other day, all that. Yeah. So he's very much raised by a strong, independent woman okay. to respect women, all that. And so he's he's kind of a nerd. He's as as, as his dad calls him. He goes, "You she raised you to be a white boy," you know. And it's, it's kind of funny because Shaft is very much 
product of his time and in Harlem. And of course they kind of portray Harlem as being what it was way back when and not what it is now. Um, Yeah. So, so yeah, there's this whole dynamic of, you know, millennials don't know this. Well, old people don't know that. And they kind of go back and forth with that. Um, You know, like I said, there's, there's this old school cool to it that you're like, okay, definitely not. Okay. But you kind of get where they're coming from. As I told Humphrey last night when we watched it, like I said, this is like sitting around with the black version of my granddad. (laughs) Not politically correct at all, but you can't help but laugh because there's there's a sincerity to you know doing these things, not necessarily for the wrong reasons, but for 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 how you kind of grew up. So um, yeah, so I I enjoyed it, and I'm surprised that it didn't do better just because it's Samuel L. Jackson. I know it's a rated R film, and it definitely earns its R rating between the language and the violence. Um, but yeah, I I kind of expected that to do a little bit better. Yeah. So. Um, of course, Dead Don't Die. That honestly didn't surprise me. I hadn't seen any advertising for it. No, and I knew it was going to be a very niche yeah. kind of thing. Same, and same goes for Late Night. We had it in a small theater, and I was kind of surprised that mm-hmm. we sold it out. Yeah. Yeah. So that's pretty much it for the box office news. Um, we'll move on. We're actually going to follow up on a story that we had last week. Um, so we told you guys last week. Sigourney Weaver recently confirmed that she and the original cast of Ghostbusters were coming back. We assume, we don't know whether she meant, you know, Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, and Ernie Hudson. I assume all three of them are coming back. But one person has actually said they they want to come back. Um, and she is going to be there. Uh, and it's Annie Potts. So I got half my wish. Now just give me Rick Moranis <laughs> and we're going to be good. Um, but she recently confirmed to KTLA 5, uh, that the Ghostbusters' perpetually overworked secretary, Janine Melnitz, will indeed return for the new film. I'm excited. Uh, I, probably the only highlight that I can really name for the, the reboot a few years ago uh, was seeing her and basically her answering the phone going, what do you want? <laughs> you know. <laughs> so I, I'm excited that she's back again. Ghostbusters. We got one. Yeah, I am. I am just. Uh, I'm happy that she's coming back because, uh, like, kind of an underrated part of those movies, you know. Especially with you know, it starts. You know, when she starts off, she's hitting on Egon, and he's just not taking to it. And like, there's there's a whole dynamic there, and it's just hilarious. And then in the second one, she's a lot more uh, sexually forward, mm-hmm. um, you know. And then of course she's with Rick Moranis at this point. And uh, like I said, their chemistry just works so well together. Yeah. Um, but even her playing off of Bill Murray too, uh, with him being kind of a dick towards her. Uh, I'm, I'm excited to see that, that dynamic again too. Uh, so yeah, so she's confirmed back. I'm excited. Are you excited? Yes. Okay. I'm glad you're excited. <laughs> All right. So we're going to move on. Uh, another story that I found here. Um, so Star Wars Episode Nine, uh, The Rise of Skywalker. Um, find out this week that they have been editing on the set during shooting. Reason being is because of the tight shooting schedule. J.J. Um, Abrams kind of came back on late in the game and because he had to replace Colin Trevorrow and basically scrapped his story and rewrote the script with Chris Terrio. Um, so Marianne Brandon, who's one of the editors on the film, uh, 
basically said because of the tighter schedule, she convinced J.J. Abrams to let her cut the film on set, meaning that she is there. She'll be there that day watching the the film, and then she can actually talk to the to director of photography, talk about getting shots they might need later. Um, the idea being, obviously, yes, we're, we're on a tight schedule. We need to get this done. Yeah. But the other factor, too, that I didn't think of is reshoots. Every film goes through reshoots. Yeah. Um, and part of the reason that Dark Phoenix took so long to come out and why we still haven't seen New Mutants is, well, New Mutants, reshoots haven't even happened yet. That movie's been done for two years, and they need to do reshoots on it. Um, you know, and part of that is getting everybody's schedule together. It's part of what screwed over Justice League with Henry Cavill's mustache because of Mission Impossible. <laughs> Not saying that's the only reason that Justice League was not good, but uh, yeah. So according to Marianne Brandon, uh, so hold on. Usually the editor isn't on set and receives dailies that they begin assembling in a rough cut or an assembly cut. Because they had four fewer months to make the Rise of Skywalker, Marianne Brandon felt it would be best if she was on set so she could start getting particular shots that she might need. She goes, I watched what they were shooting. I was cutting what they were shooting the day before. I had the director of photography right there to ask questions. Um, if I needed a shot or if JJ decided we needed another shot, we would set it up in the corner and get a green screen shot of something, you know, do whatever we need to do. Um, this is not unheard of. It might be unheard of to you. Uh, I know of one person for sure who does it on all of his films now, and that is one Kevin Smith. Okay. Um, of course he's working with films that are on a much lower budget than star Wars. Yeah. So it might make a little difference, but I think I think the idea is still the same because I mean it still has to go through the editing process and then you add in the digital effects that, that need to be subbed in. Um, it probably is nothing. I don't know. What do you think? I, I don't know. That seems weird to me, only because you don't have everything. Like I feel like editing, you need to have everything to kind of. Sure. I don't know. Well, and. Like, so I hope that they're still going to have a kind of a, another editing phase post-filming. Yeah. Well, I feel like if you're editing on the fly, because I know it's not like they're shooting in order that you can have it ready by the time we're done. Like they're obviously they, they shoot in whatever order most benefits. The right. So to do it on the fly seems kind of weird to edit in bits and pieces and not kind of have it all laid out ahead of, in front of you. Okay. Edit. Would it change your mind, Annie, if I told you that's actually how they do it anyway? The only difference here is that the editor is actually just on the set of the film. Um, normally what they do is they the editor is somewhere around the set, not on the set, but around the set, uh, or at least back in the days of 35. And they would be sent the dailies. Yeah. And they would go through the dailies, and, and you know, which is essentially what they shot for that day. And they'd go through that and start cutting it together to start making that cohesive narrative. This isn't that much different. It's just now the editors on set, they don't have as much time as they would if they were yeah. doing it the other way. Okay. But now they can actually sit there and say, okay, well, you know, we we've got this. it this way. Can we get a shot of this? Get a shot of this? That way, because when it all boils down to the actors help, you know, they create the, you know, they help create the characters. The writer creates the story and the dialogue. Mm -hmm. The director guides those performances, guides the action on set. But when it all boils down to it, and this is why I honestly think it probably ought to be a higher category at the Oscars, editors tell the story. They tell the story because they cut the whole thing together and they make it make sense. Some of them are great at it, some of them are not. Yeah. But 
they're the ones that put this thing together. Like, take all these different working parts and make it into a cohesive yeah. two-hour movie. And they're editing from footage that's, you know, hours and hours and hours, you know, 80, 90, 100 hours of footage just to get it down to two hours, you know. Yeah. Um, that makes sense. Right. So telling you that, does that ease your mind a bit? Yes. Okay. Anything else you'd like to add to that? No. Okay. All right. Uh, next up, so we've got a couple trailers that we saw this week. We'll start with Love Antosha, uh, which is the documentary about Anton Yelkin. Um, it's going to make me cry. Uh, yeah, I... Because I was not even going to lie, I was very upset when I heard the news about his death. Yeah, I think you and I texted each other that day because we were like, oh my god, really? Like, this is... Yeah. It's so tragic because he's, you know, at the time he was our age. I, he is my age, I, you know. Yeah. Um, and so and to it's see just for it to be such a freak accident, yeah, I mean, it almost makes it worse, right? And uh, that's that that in itself is awful. The fact that it's a young life is awful. Yeah. Um, but it looks like Love Antosha, which I'm assuming is his mother's nickname for him, uh, kind I of the guy so. I got. They don't, they don't really, they don't really expand on that in the trailer. Yeah, that I noticed. Um, you know, getting to see this this boy's life come together and you know I had no idea some of the things that they told us just in the trailer I didn't know he created music on his own or that he was into photography or I, knew, you know. I think I knew he was into music I didn't know to what extent yeah so I don't think I knew about the photography yeah no so sitting through this trailer I just went you know this is like I'm really interested to see it at the same time I know it's going to break my heart just because yep. you know I guarantee you we're going to interview his parents and that's going to kill me uh, just after everything I've been through, that's going to hurt. Yep. So, um, but I'm looking forward to it. I didn't see the release date on that though. Do you know about when it's coming out? Or? I, I think it was made for like Sundance or another okay. one of those kind of film festivals. So gotcha. I don't know if we will see it in theaters or if it's something we're going to have to wait for it to come to a streaming service. And that's, that's I fine. I didn't see details on that. Yeah. Okay. That was just something that happened to cross my Facebook dash. Gotcha. Um, yeah, it looked, it looked very moving and I, like, it looked like, you know, the, the boy had the time of his life when he was yeah. around, you know, I mean, getting to be Charlie Bartlett, which I auditioned for against him and I failed miserably. <laughs> I just want to point that out. Uh, that's my little claim to fame. You know, he had the Fright Night remake, which is one of the few remakes I actually enjoy more than the, the original. Love that movie. Um, yeah, him and, uh, David Tennant make that yes. film. Definitely. Um, you know, and then of course his, his you know, his version of Chekhov in the Star Trek trilogy, the the most recent one, has been just fantastic. Peter. <laughs> like it's he's so good and of course he's so convincing because he is he is actually Russian. Yeah. You know. He he grew up surrounded by a Russian accent, so of course yeah. he can duplicate yeah. it. So um yeah, that that, that documentary is gonna be heartbreaking to watch. If you get a chance to look up the trailer, it's called Love and Tosha, uh, A-N-T-O-S-H-A. Um it looks like it's going to be a beautiful tribute to to yeah. an actor that got taken away from us way too young. Uh, and, uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Next trailer up. So we've had Escape Room. We've had Truth or Dare. Now we have Ready or Not, which is actually a much classier looking film than, than the other two. The other two are from Blumhouse. This one's from Fox Searchlight. Ready or Not follows the story of a young bride who is invited on the night of her wedding by her rich and eccentric in-laws to participate in a time-honored tradition that turns into a lethal game of survival with everything fighting, everyone fighting to stay alive. Uh, starring Samara Weaving, uh, who I have not seen in anything. 
Andy McDowell, Adam Brody, Mark O'Brien, Henry Cherney, um, Melanie Scrifano, a couple other people. Uh, I watched this. I'm not going to lie. I kind of enjoyed the trailer, like for all of its schlock. What did you think? I literally finished watching it and went, what the fuck did I just watch? And there's our one F-bomb for the show. Congratulations, I Trisha. I think it deserved it. Ooh, that's fair. So if you watch the trailer... It looks like the family is trying to sacrifice her for whatever reason, and they have to do it by dawn. Yes. And so her new husband is trying to keep her alive. She is trying to duck them. I laugh. Like, it looks like it's going to be darkly funny. Uh, and it's got a great cast. Like, I'm, I'm digging Andy McDowell, Adam Brody, and Henry Cherney as, as the yeah. in-laws. It's one of those that could go either way. It's either going to be, like, genius, or it's going to be... Sharknado. I don't think anything will be Sharknado. That's a whole different breed of awful. <laughs> like it's just gonna be awful, or it's gonna be just amazing, and I can't for the life of me decide which it's gonna be. Yeah, I go back and forth. Right. I'm, I'm hoping that it, it turns out to be just absolute genius and like twist worthy of like Cabin in the Woods. Oh God, yes. If it's like Cabin in the Woods, I'm definitely. I would be totally down. Yeah. But I, I worry that it's going to be just stupid. And there's a good chance that it, that it will be stupid. I don't know, but it's Fox Searchlight. Fox Searchlight does nothing but kind of artsy-fartsy films. Yeah. The sure. fact that they're doing... Well, like I said, they got a talented cast together for it, for yeah. what amounts to a horror flick. I'm thinking it's going to be more dark comedy. Hope, yeah. I mean, there's some big names in there. and What's the chances that that many decent names picked a really bad script? Right. Yeah, well, and I haven't seen Andy McDowell in anything lately, so kind of nice to see her back. Adam Brody hasn't done that much either. He was in Shazam, briefly, briefly. briefly. So, but yeah. All right, we're going to take another quick break. We come back, we got a couple more stories to follow up on, and then we're actually going to get into a discussion about um, Men in Black International and the summer of the lackluster sequels is what I'm calling it. So we'll be right back. All right, we're back. So let's get on to our next topic. Um, Lionsgate nabs the Hunger Games prequel for the big screen. So we found out this week that Suzanne Collins uh, has announced that a prequel to her hit young adult book series is in the works and will arrive on May 19th, 2020. In addition, Lionsgate, having previously adapted the three Hunger Games books into four movies, will be home uh, for the prequel on the big screen as well. This is all according to The Hollywood Reporter. Um here we go. So as the home, proud home of the Hunger Games movies, we can hardly wait for Suzanne's next book to be published. We've been communicating with her during the writing process, and we look forward to continuing to work closely with her on the movie, said Joe Drake, who's the chairman of Lionsgate Motion Picture Group. Untitled novel will be set 64 years before the events of the trilogy, focusing on the failed rebellion attempt in the country of Pan Am. With this book, I wanted to explore the state of nature, who we are, who are we, and what we perceive as required for our survival, Colin said. The Reconstruction period, 10 years after the war, commonly referred to as the Dark Days, as the country of Pan Am struggles back to its feet, provides fertile ground for characters to grapple with these questions and thereby define their views of humanity. You're the resident young adult expert, and you're actually the one who got me to read the, the, the first set of books and watch the movies. You're welcome. I, I don't know. I, I enjoyed them. I, I, yes, I was going to say, I'm, I'm the young adult fan by the table. I hesitate to use the word expert. 
but um, you know more about it than I do, so you're automatically a damn expert. Hearing your title, hearing Lionsgate already has the rights is not surprising because movie studios frequently buy up the rights to books, whether or not they actually make the movie. There's actually another young adult series I really like that the author has said another Veronica R actually. No, oh, okay, not the same one. Um, who has a very popular? It's called Under Under the Oh shoot Under the Never Sky, something like that. There's a trilogy that I actually really enjoyed that she has said that the film rights have been bought. However, a movie has never been made. No one has ever announced intentions to make the movie. It's just a studio bought the rights so they would have the rights. And then that apparently the studio has kind of moved on from the young adult thing as, as happens. Right. So hearing that Lionsgate already wants in on it, especially given that it's a continuation of a, a popular tri- trilogy, not surprising. Well, it's like it's like hearing WB has bought the rights to anything J.K. Rowling has ever bought. Not surprising. Yeah. However, hearing that she's writing another book, as much as I love The Hunger Games, makes me worry. Because again, one of my biggest fandoms is Harry Potter. Anyone who knows me knows that. I mean, I'm sitting here with a Harry Potter case on my phone and a Harry Potter and a Harry Potter shirt, shirt at the moment. Um, but I love J.K. Rowling. But she can't leave the world she created alone. She has to keep tweaking and keep changing and keep adding and keep doing things. And it's sometimes it gets to the point where you're just like, let it go. Yeah. Move on. Enjoy enjoy what you've created and move on. Yeah. And so I worry that Hunger Games is going to become this. Like, at least Divergent. I'm almost happy that now that the last movie didn't happen because that means that she'll kind of leave, leave it alone. Like there's been like subsequent divergent themed, like short right. stories since then. And that's fine. But that world is kind of ended and the author's moved on and that's the end of it. So I'm like, I don't know how I feel about trying to continue building in this world. Sure. Like, can we just enjoy what you created and just move on? Like, did you intend to do this all along? Yeah. Because that's one thing. Like, J.K. Rowling, it started with, well, I created, I came up with all this info that I didn't end up using, so I want to share this info with you. And that's fine, and I appreciated that. But then it became, okay, this is a lot of stuff. You're, You're changing things that don't seem to really make sense and fit in with what you were done. I feel like you're just coming up with things to stay relevant. And that makes me sad. Yeah. So hearing this, that there's going to be a prequel on the one hand, I'm like, that could be interesting. And I'm, I do kind of want to know more about the backstory of how Pan Am came to be, but I don't know if I really want the author to go down this road. Uh, I definitely don't know if I want movies to be made of it. I'm, I'm with you. Um, Cause I feel like the general audience is past the point. Of being that interested. You're down to just the hardcore fans, which aren't going to make you a whole lot of money. Right. It's not going to be successful, and you're going to give up. The studio's probably going to give up on it pretty quick. I, I agree with you to an extent on that, but as Harry Potter and the Fantastic Beasts movies have proven, it's not just the hardcore fans that are coming out for it. It is general audiences now. That being said... I Harry, am, Harry Potter's a whole other animal, though. It really is. Um, Harry Potter is, has a life of its own. Yeah. That being said, because uh, I have to play my own devil's advocate here, Crimes of Grendelwald. 
it started off high and then dropped drastically. And part of that was the word of mouth. Part of it was, I mean, the movie's just not good. Like it's all set up. Yeah. Well, and saying that it's just not even good setup. Like it's, it changes things that we know about characters already. Like it caused her to go back to Pottermore, her website and start changing things that were already considered canon on there. Um, just because they wanted to include McGonagall. Right. When it didn't make sense. No. And so... Which I defended when I watched the movie. It's like, it never says it's Minerva. And then when I hear that she's changing Pottermore and changing Minerva McGonagall's birthday. Right. Like, just say that it's her mother. Yeah. That's all they, you had to do. Right, because they never confirmed whether or not her mother was yeah. a teacher. Or what all you did. had to do was make it her mother. And yeah. And it right. would have fit, and people would have accepted it. But right. then you had to go tweak stuff and change things last minute, and that, that annoys me. Yeah. Um, I think admit you made a mistake. Right. I think a prequel would be interesting, but only if they do, they have to do this for me to be interested in it is obviously they're going to show the actual hunger game event for that year. Mm -hmm. I don't know who that winner was. Doesn't matter. I was was trying to remember if there was any sort of mention of that specific hunger games. Yeah. It wouldn't have been Hamish. It wouldn't have been. The only ones they mentioned are the ones that we see the victors. Right. In the second Hunger Games. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it wouldn't be any of the characters that we know, which might be for the best. Yeah. Um, so if you're going to do a prequel, do that. Honestly, if they were to make that, like, the first act of the movie is, you know, rounding up that first that hunger set of Hunger Games and then follow the victor of that game through the political underbelly mm-hmm. of all of it. Because as we found out, when you read the books, uh, especially going into Mockingjay... Things for the victors, like, yeah, they, they win, they get to live. I mean, that's, that's a plus. Yeah, it ain't it's, no, no. They're, they're held as champions of their, their district, and they get to go to the, these extravagant parties. But they find themselves, Finnick O'Dare being a prime example, find themselves basically prostituting themselves. So if there was anyone in those series that I would want to see the backstory of, it'd be Finnick. Right. And Sam Claflin's young enough, he can still do that. Yeah. Um, and it would be an interesting concept. He probably would, because he's talked about how much he enjoyed being finished. Yeah. And um, he actually put the research into that. I remember after he was cast, people were unsure of whether he should do it or not. Yeah. And he talked a lot about how much research he put into knowing... Like, he immediately went and read the books and talked about how he wanted to do Finnick Justice. And that was the moment I went, I accept you. Right. Like... Yeah. If so, you're, you're going to put that much effort into this character... Yeah. But that's, like I said, if you're going to do this prequel, you're going to have to get me, and I'm very much one of those people that, like, I'm not, I didn't hate the Star Wars prequels. Do I, do I dislike some of the dialogue, some of the story choices? Yes. The politics of that part of the Star Wars universe, and even after that, when you get into the expanded universe stuff, um, the politics of the Empire and how the Emperor kind of manipulates people to, to bend to his will, so to speak, to see, um... I think it's President Snow. Is that his name? Yeah, the villain. Uh, to see him, a younger version of him doing that and moving these pawns as political pieces so that way he can maintain control. That would be a far more interesting concept to me. I don't know that I need more than one movie for it. Um, if you're going to do it, it would probably, probably do need at least two. But I, at that point, you're almost milking the cow dry. Yeah. And, and so I don't know that we need to go that far. That that's all that's, that this is. Yeah. So I hope not, but no, I am hoping that it does like, it's more on par with the first fantastic beast than the second. So, yeah. you know, 
uh, and learn from the second Fantastic Beast mistakes. Don't change things we already know about characters. Yeah. All right. So moving on, Dark Phoenix bombed last week. It has continued to to just free fall this week. However, that that series has had some pretty interesting developments over the years that either came true or didn't come to fruition. Case in point, X-Men Origins Magneto. Had Wolverine not sucked ass, we would have gotten Magneto and hoped to God it would have been good. Parts of it wound up being used for first class, which worked out just fine. Him escaping from the concentration camp, all that. Um, So yeah, so X-Men composer and editor John Ottman revealed that there was an abandoned Beast spinoff script and it would have starred Nicholas Holt. It makes me sad. Because Nicholas Holt's great. And he's great as Beast. So, anyway, so John Ottman revealed to The Hollywood Reporter that one of the more exciting recent projects that never came to fruition was the spinoff. And basically told them that his assistant at the time uh, of work on 2016's Apocalypse, Byron Burton, came to him with a pitch for a spinoff of the Harry Potter character. After expressing some some doubts on the project's possibilities, uh, Byron Burton decided to write a script in a couple weeks, just wrote the script, just pounded out a, a spec. Ottman took it, looked at it, and said, you know what, why don't we see if we can get this pitched and, and yeah. you know, see what happens. Turned in the draft two weeks later. Ottman, surprised, it's actually pretty good, or that could work. Um, you know, he's offering help with tweaks. They're talking about a budget of $90 million. It'll bring back Professor X as James, you know, James McAvoy is that character, although apparently Wolverine would have been in it. Hugh Jackman's already retired at this point. Yeah. Um, and it would have been set between Apocalypse and Dark Phoenix. Okay. So, and he's still using that serum that he got in Days of Future Past to, yeah. to keep him looking normal. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Uh, I kind of wonder where which, this would have gone to. Dark Phoenix, I did, we didn't talk about this last week. Can mm-hmm. he- Switch back and forth at will. Is, is that kind of looks that Phoenix, way. Dark Phoenix was implying. Kind of looked that way. Yeah. Is that is that even a thing? I don't think so. Like, and more often than not, when you see him in the comics, he just stays blue. Yeah. So, um, right. yeah. Because previous movies make it seem like he needed the serum to yeah. look to look normal. Right. So here's what basically to turn back blue, we just have to wait for the, the serum to wear off. Yeah. So, so here's, here's the premise of this potential film. While working to adjust to his problems with his mutation, Hank has also been helping a scientist with a similar genetic mutation by offering him samples of the serum, but he realizes that a string of creature attacks on a snow-covered Inuit village are linked to a negative effect on the scientist from the serum. Uh, here's the quote. We wanted to have the tenor of John Carpenter's The Thing when you're in this inhospitable environment. So Hank would have traveled to the village to confront the scientists for a final showdown, teaming up with Professor X and Wolverine, uh, whom the former found using his mutant monitoring machine Cerebro. And after defeating the scientists, it's revealed in the post credit scene that Mr. Senator was a sinister was observing the events. So that brings me back to Apocalypse. The post credit scenes of that uh, implied that the Essex Corporation would have been the villain for the next movie, meaning Mr. Sinister, who's a whole other villain we can get into another time. We didn't even get that in Dark Phoenix. So it would have gone it would have gone Apocalypse, Beast, Dark Phoenix, and they would have had to rewrite Dark Phoenix to include Mr. Sinister. Okay. That kind of like now now maybe Beast would have fixed the problems with Dark Phoenix. Maybe Possibly. not. I don't know. I'm not feeling it. 
like I, I'd watch a Beast movie. Yeah. But in the context of everything else that's going on, gone on, I still stand by my decision last week. Kill it, let it die, and let the MCU resurrect it. Yeah. So, I mean, you have any other takeaways from this? I mean, no, that pretty much sums it up because this particular iteration of X Men started strong and just ended on a whimper, and so just let it die. Yeah. Let MCU do what they want with the yeah. mutants, right? In the future. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. So, all right, we're going to take another quick break. When we come back, we're going to discuss the mediocre sequels of this summer 2019. We'll be right back. All right, so we're back. Men in Black International, the fourth movie in the, in the MIB franchise. No Will Smith, no Tommy Lee Jones. Uh, Barry Sonnenfeld doesn't even come back to, to direct. Um, instead, we get F. Gary Gray behind the camera. We get Chris Hemsworth as Agent H and Tessa Thompson as Agent M. Movie itself did not get good reviews. I think it's sitting like 24% on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, and this is one of two sequels that got released this week, and the other being Shaft, which is sitting right about the same, maybe a little bit higher. I can't remember. Um, yeah, so let's talk about Men in Black International. What, what went right what went wrong? Because I think when you and I got done with it, we agreed. We enjoyed it so much more than Dark Phoenix. Yes, but that's not saying a whole lot. True. That was a very low, low bar to set. Uh, and that was coming from somebody who initially enjoyed Dark Phoenix until yeah, I started like, thinking what about What I told it. people is I didn't regret my time when I got done with it. Yeah. Um, Which, again, is a very low bar to set. Yeah. What I told you was that it was safe. It was bland. Yeah. It yeah. was kind of what the other two Men in Black sequels had been in terms of tone and all I that. I think they relied too much on, A, trying to piggyback off of the original Men in Black films, trying to make it too much like them instead of letting letting Chris Hemsworth and Tessa Thompson do their own, make their own characters. Right. And B, at the same time, they also relied too heavy on their their chemistry. Yeah. Which is weird to say that they didn't trust them enough and they trusted them too much. But I think if, I think they tried too hard to make it seem, make it too much like the original trilogy when they would have benefited from just introducing new brand new characters with completely different personalities right into this world. They, they played too heavily on the straight laced versus the fast and loose. Yeah. Which is exactly the, the interactions in the first. Right. Um, Except this time it's just flip between the rookie yeah. and, and the old pro. Yeah. Um, I kind of see that argument. Uh, that was kind of the one thing I did like was that they did play up on, on that being a little different because her Tessa Thompson's character has been desperate to find the men in black for years and years and years. Um, Chris Hemsworth has been doing a while. Yeah. Hemsworth has been doing it for a while. And so I'm not going to say he's jaded to it, but, um, you know, he's definitely a lot looser with it. And even to the point where I think even Will Smith's agent Jay would have gone, dude, what the hell do you think you're doing? (laughs) Um, almost too loose with that character. Yeah. Um, it did show a different aspect of it, and I think in the hands of a better writer, that dynamic could have been played up a little better. Yeah. Um, I'm with you. Hemsworth and Thompson are great. They're great yeah. together. They were great together in, in uh, Thor Ragnarok. Um, 
but part of the issue too is like I said, it, the movie plays it safe. And what I mean by it plays it safe is the twist with the film and its plot is so damn easy to predict that if you watch one trailer, you should be able to go, oh, okay, got it. That's what's going to happen in the end. And then you're right. We, we both called the ending 10 minutes in? Yeah. Less than that, like five. Uh, We're like, this is what's going to happen. This is what they're going to want you to think mm-hmm. is happening, but this is what's actually going to happen. And yeah. yeah. Um, and sure enough, it's what happened. We were disappointed. Whatever. Beyond that, the movie itself, it's entertaining. Uh, to coin a phrase from Lucy, uh, one of our past guests, utterly watchable. <laughs> um, I, I'm going to call it the equivalent. It's funny because it's true. It is true. Uh, I'm going to call it the, uh, the equivalent. It's movie fast food. Yes. Which, for a good stretch of the, the MCU, unfortunately, I considered that to be it too. Like, I could watch it, I'd enjoy it, and then I'd forget all about it. Yeah. Um, and this is going to be the exact same way. Uh, it's not going to do anything to blow your mind. It's not going to do anything to, you know, make you go, well, I'm ready for another one. <laughs> like, we got done with it, and I went, eh, if they stopped, I'm good. If they make another one, well, I hope it's better than this. So, um, which brings me to the question I have, which is, this is not the first, this isn't the first movie of just this year like that. Um, Godzilla got lukewarm reviews when it came out. Um, Secret Life of Pets 2, the exact same way. Shaft has gotten dumped on. Um, Dark Phoenix being the fourth of the X-Men first class franchise. Yeah. What exactly is going on in Hollywood that is causing these sequels to just not even be what we consider mediocre, much less good? People have been complaining for years about Hollywood being out of touch with what consumers want. Right. For a while, I kind of dismissed it as, oh, whatever. But this is the first year that I've almost felt like it's kind of true because people have been complaining for literally years about they're tired of sequels, they're tired of reboots, they want original stories. Right. And this year is just full of sequels and reboots and yeah. remakes and it's like are you not listening right the people that you're expecting to pay money to come see your movies are telling you what they don't want and you're making exactly what they don't want right and like to an extent of course i'm, I'm i've always been make make the story you want tell the story you want sure but to some extent you have to go the stories we're, we're selling are not selling Maybe we should rethink this strategy a little bit. Yeah. Maybe we should get away from sequels. It's like Disney in the 90s. Yeah. So many sequels. And the sequels get all the attention. And the few, like, really cool original ones got, like, put on the back burner. Yeah. And ignored. And still are severely underrated. Like, can, maybe we should get away from sequels and yeah. reboots. And actually tell an original story for once. Uh, I don't disagree there. Um, so far this summer, the only two sequels to anything that have gotten positive reviews, at least that I've seen, Avengers Endgame, mm-hmm. John Wick Chapter 3. Yeah, That's it. And that's because both Avengers Endgame told a solid story yes. that finishes up an entire decade's worth yes. of stories. Um, and John Wick, each John Wick is different. Yes, different but the same. It's, I mean, it's, yeah, it's it's the same concept, but told. They're each told in a very different. Way. Well, and they expand things, and so they yeah. they build on the world they've created, and so you, every time you go back in, 
you're learning something new, either yeah. about Wick or about the underworld that he's in. Um, yeah. Not to mention, they're very entertaining. Like they, the yeah. the movies, let's be honest, they're kind of low on plot. Like I mean, it's it's paper thin. Let's let's be honest. As much as I love my dogs, a revenge story because <laughs> somebody killed his dog and took his car is kind of a thin plot point. But it's yeah. everything around that. I've always, on it perfectly. I, I have told you repeatedly over the years that a good story, a good, a good character will only get you so far. Yeah. Uh, but if your story, if your story is kind of thin, your characters can more than make up for it. Um, and that's coming from somebody who loves a good story. Yeah. John Wick. Is a thin story, Whereas but I everything tend, that's... I tend to be more character-driven. Right. But that's me. Yes. And so, the further we get into John Wick, though, we're introduced to more characters. We learn more about this character we do like. And the story is getting thicker as we go. Yes. Like, it's just, yeah. you, you're peeling an onion at this point. And that's the way any good story should be. Agreed. So, it's not just, it's, it's not as thin as I'm claiming it is. Because, like I said, each time we go back... There's something new happening, and it's much more multi-tiered than just oh, he's pissed off because they stole his stole his car and killed his dog. Yeah, you know it's and even then it was more than that because he had gotten out. He want you know he wanted to stay out. His wife's dead. He's got nothing to live for. Mm-hmm. You know, like I said, Avengers Endgame. I mean, we're wrapping up a bunch of stories here with characters that we know and love. Um, but then we get to movies like Godzilla. The only character I care about in that movie, Godzilla. <laughs> Maybe King Ghidorah, just because yeah. I want to see these monsters fight. Well, the characters that were in the first Godzilla that we all came to follow and care about are completely MIA in this in the new Godzilla. Well, well, yes, the, except the for the original family, right? The original, well, yeah, the, well, Brian, the family that you follow, Brian Cranston. And, well, they and, killed Brian Cranston off early son. in that film. Well, I know. So, but, still, like, but yeah, Aaron Taylor Johnson. Yeah, Aaron and, Taylor Johnson's character specifically is just gone mm-hmm. with no explanation. Uh, well, and I get that they're kind of like going with the scientist perspective on this one, but it's right. like, why would you introduce these characters just to completely abandon them in the sequel? Right. Honestly, I'm okay with it because we still follow, um, I can't remember his name, Ken Watanabe. Ken Watanabe's character, and um, I can't remember her name. And I feel awful for that. Um, she was in The Shape of Water, though. Yeah. Um, but those two scientists, I'm more interested in what they're doing than what the family in this movie is doing. Uh, specifically because Vera Farmiga's character is just awfully written. Um, and uh, honestly, so is Ron Livingston's. Uh, or No, sorry, Kyle Chandler. Yeah, that's the same thing. You're going to bring in a family that we know nothing about and try to give us a like right. five-second introduction to them and their backstory in the beginning? Yeah. Like, no. Yeah. So what I feel like Men in Black succeeded at is they created two agents that are likable enough that we want to follow. Like, I would yeah. watch a sequel with them if they yeah. did. Any complaints I have about Men in Black it, it International has nothing. has nothing to do with the two agents. Right. At and, all. And has everything. Yeah, it has everything to do with the, the story. lackluster story in yeah. that instance. Um, you know. I think they thought that these two characters would carry it, and they just... Don't really. Yeah, uh, they enough. don't give them. They don't give them enough to do. Yeah. Um, you know, and there's also this lack of mystery um, that you got from the first. And, and that's the thing is two two just kind of lays it all out on Front Street, and we're kind of rehashing things there by bringing Agent K back and putting him in Jay's role. Yeah. Um, 
you know, three is the only sequel so far that I've like actually truly enjoyed. And I will actually watch when it's on television. It, and that's because it's different. It's a time travel yeah. story. They do the smart thing and go do go have him meet younger Agent K, played by Josh Brolin, who does a dead-on Tommy Lee Jones impression. Um, you know, and make it about you know their connection as much deeper than well, he decided to recruit him because he saw him bust this you know alien perp on the streets. You know, like they they expanded on it. So of of the four movies we got, one is great, three is good. I like this one a little bit better than two, but that's only because I couldn't tell you what two what happened in two, other than Rosario Dawson was in it. Yeah, that's same. it, and that they brought Kay back and he was a mailman and like yeah. like honestly, can you remember anything about two? No. Oh, that and the song. Like I like the theme song from two better than one. That's it. Nod your head is a friggin' bop. <laughs> all right. So so we agree that there's a problem with the story in this movie. Yes. Much like there's a problem with Dark Phoenix and its story. Yes. And even Shaft, which I watched last night, is a very thin story. It kind of kind of pulls from the Beverly Hills Cop or all the other buddy cop movies where guy guy's best friend gets killed and so he goes and, you know, teams up with somebody who's the exact opposite of him. It's a straight up buddy cop story. Yeah, like we were talking about the Academy voter that called Avengers movies money grabs and he wouldn't vote for money grabs. If anything of recent in Hollywood is money grabs, it's the sequels. Because they're relying heavily on the actors pulling in people and the kind of built-in fan base that these series have to pull in people to make money. And then they're not actually putting a whole lot of effort into creating a story with good writing and whatnot and actually making a good movie. They're just kind of, it's like they're putting in the bare minimum effort to bring in enough people to make money. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of what I feel like out of these, which kind of pisses me off more. Like you don't actually, do you actually care about the content you're putting out? Are you just strictly going, ignoring the art and going to the business side and well, this will make money. So we'll go with this instead of this original story that, yeah, might actually be very interesting. That's what I take away from it. Yeah. No, I I agree with you. Like, I love a good sequel as much as the next person. Yeah. And even when they're not as good as the original, at least the, at least if you tell a story that expands on the characters and makes me laugh yeah. or makes me feel something, like, we're going to do a top five sequels here in a bit, and I can I can assure you not all of them were better than the originals. Um, but, like, I don't know. Like, it feels like most of the sequels that you see, and especially now, are basically just rehashing the exact same thing over again and not, you know, causing characters to revert back, and that's not what we want to see. At least with the John Wick franchise, everybody's moving forward. With the MCU, everybody's moving forward, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and, like, at least with the MCU, like, they may be quote-unquote sequels, but at least they're trying to tell good stories. They're not just like, okay, people yeah. like Captain America, so we'll just throw Chris Evans and there's Captain America and people come watch. Yeah. Like, it's not that. They're actually no. trying to tell a good story, which is why they're all so successful. Well, well, and the thing, too, is, is that I feel like a good sequel also should take risks that the first movie didn't. Yes. Winter Soldier is a good case in point. So 
first Avenger basically is him. It's an origin story, obviously, yeah. but it's that World War II era, and it's him being the good boy scout, you know, soldier yeah. boy marching on. Get to Winter Soldier, and it's him dealing with one being in the modern world after yeah. the events of the Avengers. Two, him learning oh. that that everything he knows and love is not what it's, it was made out to be. It's changed. Him losing his naivete. Yeah, it's it's a loss of innocence story yeah, at that like, point. In, in First Avenger, everything like his, his world is so black and white. Yeah. really. I mean, he yeah. he kind of the the closest we get to him learning it's not black and white is him joining the the military in the U.S. outside and being like, okay, the grass isn't always greener on the outside defense. Right. But it's still these are the bad guys. These are the good guys. End of story. Yeah. We're gonna go punch some Nazis. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah. And then very black and white. Yeah. And then Winter Soldier is being like, well. <laughs> Okay, the bad guys are still the bad guys, but there's some good guys that aren't good guys. Aren't making great decisions, and yeah, there's straight up people we thought were good guys that are actually right. bad guys. Oh yeah, it's, I think the most important part of that is learning that the good guys make bad decisions too. Yeah, and that's I think that's kind of where Captain America starts to kind of come into himself. Well, the Dark Knight does something similar too, in yeah. that it. Uh, so Batman obviously has to struggle with this decision of what to do about the Joker. The yeah. Joker is absolute. There is no gray area with him. He is there to cause chaos, and that's it. Um, he's the definition of chaotic evil. Exactly. He just wants to. He wants to break the bat. That's his only goal. That is yeah. it. He wants to cause Batman to break his one rule. And see how much chaos he can and cause as much. Exactly. See what it's going to take to make a man go crazy. Well, the thing about Batman is, is that he already has. Yeah. You have to be crazy. Let's be honest. You have to be crazy to dress like a bat and be a. It'd be crazy to be a vigilante anyway, but to do it with yeah. a cape and pointed ears, you got to be friggin' nuts. What same person is like Batman? Right. So Batman's already there. He's already crazy. It's just yeah. at what point are we going to break his rule? The exact opposite of him is a guy dressed as a diseased looking clown because <laughs> that makeup just keeps flaking off as the movie progresses. Yeah. Um, and it's basically his exact opposite is this diseased looking clown who just wants to cause chaos and see what's going to take to make this guy snap. Yep. Um, and so, and we see that when he takes Harvey Dent hostage and, and gets him burnt up and all that. Uh, and even in that scene at the hospital where he, you know, was like, you know, yeah. you got a chance to blow my brains out right now. Go ahead. Like, let's, let's just, I want to see what's going to make you go yeah. nuts. Yeah. Um, you know, that was the smart thing about that film is that Batman Begins is, again, a straight origin story that's smartly told and, uh, like, kind of subverts a lot of superhero tropes, but while following that same formula, Dark Knight turns into a straight up crime drama. Yeah. And,. You know, it just uh, uh, chain, turns everything on its head. And so I feel like that's the goal of a good sequel is to whatever the the protagonist has accomplished in the first film mm -hmm. has got to be completely flipped upside down in the sequel. And, and I feel like Dark Knight has done that well. So that being said, you know what sequel we, we started? We, I'm backtracking here. We were talking trailers earlier. We did not talk Dr. Sleep, which mm -hmm. is a sequel to The Shining. But it's a case, good case in point here. Where does that sequel have to go to be successful? Because in The Shining, you know, he was a little boy. 
Danny Torrance is a little boy. He escaped his alcoholic father who got, you know, went absolutely psycho, psycho at the Overlook Hotel. We're now following him as a 40-year-old man, yeah. you know, dealing with that same trauma, yeah. you know, while having this other set of events going on around him. Like, tell me that's not an intriguing story. Um, yeah, I mean, we could sit here and go, yeah, Ewan McGregor's in it, we want to see it, which <laughs> so I know that's I where you're at. I'm in just because they actually recreate moments from The Shining and do it to the the degree that that film deserves. Like the carpet in the, the hallway sequence when he's riding his little tricycle, they recreate that yeah. to a T with that same ugly-ass hect- hexagon <laughs> carpet. But I'm curious to see where the sequel goes and if they how, how they're going to explore his trauma. Yeah. Uh, you know, being, you know, so young then and now an older man who's still dealing with his capability of shining, you know, being able to telepathically communicate with people. Yeah. Um, you know, I feel like that's that's what a good sequel should do. It should be able to hook you with these characters you already know, yeah. but that you still kind of don't know. Yeah. Um, you know, and explore things about them that we didn't know. Like I said, that's a huge gap of time to get into. We could have followed Danny Torrance as a teenager, yeah. as a 20-something, a 30-something. We're, we're skipping ahead yeah. 30 years, four, almost 40, yeah. just to see what happens to him. Yep. You know, and meanwhile, we keep getting other sequels where it's like, oh, let's just... It's been a couple of years. Yeah, here you go, X-Men. You've been 10 years. X is still kind of a dick. Magneto's in hiding. Here you go. And none of you have aged a day. Nobody's aged a day. Like, to me, I think the biggest problem with a lot of these sequels is that they don't respect the characters or the source yeah. material that they use. And, and by not respecting those characters, they're disrespecting their audience. Um, I've told you, I think the audience is smarter than they let on. Granted, granted, they can't remember the title of a friggin' movie. They can't figure out that they're not supposed to let kids sit in the same seat for one price when they need to obviously be charged for two. But they are smarter than they let on. And especially in the internet age where you can you look up anything and learn about these characters. Yep. I, I I feel like we are due for a sequel where we it's not all cut and dry and it's you know the characters are evolving, they are learning and they're not backtracking. Yeah. So one thing I hate about sequels is when they backtrack. I love Ghostbusters 2. It's one of my childhood favorites. But basically, the events of that movie at the start, where they have not been loved in five years and they got sued by New York City and all that, is basically just a way to start them over to have them have the exact same story over again. Uh, And that's not fair to that's not fair to Bill Murray or Harold Ramis and Dan Aykroyd, which those two wrote the film. Bill Murray wasn't excited about it. Uh, and and it's almost lazy sequel writing, and I hate saying that about the dead because God rest Errol Ramis. Yeah, but that is what happens more often than not with sequels. Hangover Two is a key, like like it's a. I mean, it's obvious. Like that movie is the exact same as the first one. Yeah, a sequel shouldn't be just retelling the first story again with different circumstances. Right. The only time I've ever known that to work was with Evil Dead Two, and that's when they uh, basically remade the first film. But you get kept with the, the events from it. You know what it's called when you retell a story with dis- different circumstances? Fan fiction. Ooh. Ooh. You went there. I did. You did. So, like I said, I 
I love a good sequel, and I I really hate that. I had to go there given that, that we've had multiple movies that are based around fan fiction. They literally started in, as fan fiction that came out as movies. One an entire series, and one was just a small movie that came out that didn't do have a whole lot of yeah emphasis. Yeah, so I don't know. It just like I said, when you get a sequel. Like, you have certain expectations. Yeah. And you hope it's better. Yeah. I just, I'm beyond that point where I think anything is worth doing a second time over. Unless you're going to, like I said, completely turn it on its head. Unless you actually have more story to tell. Yeah. It's either you're going to have got to have more story to tell or you've got to find a way I feel like to make it different. Like, you most- have to do both. The most successful sequels are the ones that they already had story in mind before the first movie ever came out and, and were popular. Like they already had a series planned and they just released the first part of it just to kind of test the waters and then expanded on it as it went by. I would agree with that to an extent. I think the best sequels are the ones where they don't rehash things that happened beforehand, but they go a totally different direction. Case in point, Alien. And, like, change tone. So Alien is a straight-up horror movie on a spaceship following this this woman who, you know, her crew is being stalked by the alien creature, by the xenomorph. Aliens, on the other hand, follows her, you know, however far far into the future after when she wakes up. She's still being stalked by xenomorphs, but now she's surrounded by space marines. And they go straight action with it. And she's not, not that she was a victim, being more of a victim in the first one, but she definitely is willing to take the fight to the alien in that sequel. Yeah. You know, she's, she grabs the gun, she grabs the, the mech suit to go fight it. Um, she's not going to be pushed over. Same goes for Terminator and Terminator 2. Terminator follows Linda Hamilton's character, uh, Sarah Connor, basically being, uh, you know, kind of, kind of meek. You know, as she's being hunted by this Terminator, it wants to keep her from having the child that's going to save us from the from the robots. Yeah. The sequel is her being a badass warrior woman, <laughs> you know, taking the fight to them. And I'm not saying you have to do that every time because both movies, both sequels are James Cameron. But by doing that, by showing that growth of your character mm-hmm. and changing tone of your film, certain expectations don't get met because people kind of expect the same but new, you know, like like now you can exceed those expectations because now you're telling a totally different story yeah. that still fits in that same universe, fits in that same vein. It's just different, yeah. And it's not the exact same thing over and over again. And that's those are the sequels I think work the best. Yeah. Same goes for Dark Knight. Like I said, first one's a Batman Begins straight up superhero movie. Dark Knight is a damn crime drama. If you take away the cape and cowl and the the clown makeup. The Batmobile, you take away certain set pieces, it's a straight-up crime drama. Yeah. So about a vigilante taking on a psychopath. Yeah. That's it. And, like, you know, and it's still a good movie. Sure. So there we go. So there it is. So that's that's our our issue with current sequels, what we would like to see do done differently. When we come back for our final segment, we are doing our top five sequels. Now, just to preface this, these are not the top five best sequels, so you're not going to hear anything but just Empire Strikes Back or Godfather Part Two or 
or aliens or what you're going to hear some of those i can guarantee you empires on my list because it's empire same goes with dark Knight. i've already spoiled half my list right here but it's sequels that we enjoyed and they may not have been as good as the original but there's strictly opinion not facts. exactly and, there, and there's there's no wrong answer when it comes to this like if you enjoyed something enjoy it like that's what i want to want to preface this list with if you enjoy it enjoy it if you don't enjoy it don't enjoy it but don't be a dick about it you know that's the one thing i can't stand like i i know i've given people shit over the years where i go you have you're entitled to your wrong opinion <laughs> i say it mostly as a joke if you enjoy it enjoy it so we'll be right back with our top five sequels All right, we're back. So we're doing top five sequels. Again, this is, as I prefaced earlier, not the top five best sequels, just our top five favorite sequels. So not taking into account whether or not it's better than the original or what. It's just ones that we were like, yes, we, we like it that. enough. Yeah, I need to go back to that one. Like, like we don't mind going back to it. Men in Black 2 would not be on this list because no. I couldn't tell you anything that happened to it. And Men in Black 3, I will go back to. It's not on this list either. No. So... Ladies first, what's your number five? We're jumping right in with controversial here. Let's do it. Boondock Saints 2. Woo! Boondock Saints 2. I know lots of people that absolutely hate it. Okay. I enjoyed it. Yeah? It's nowhere near as good as the original. No. But I still enjoyed it. Well, and I still quote it quite often. We do. Shut up! Romeo's crying! No, I I like the sequel. I really did. Um, it does, it does one of the things we talked about. It does not take the brothers backwards. No. Um, they are still very much who they were at the end of the first one yes. and move forward in that. Uh, is the story about the same? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, we've pretty well rehashed it, but I feel like with a movie like that, you can get away with it and it's fine. Yeah. Um, especially since the first movie. Not that great to begin with. Any like I enjoy it. Like I will watch the shit out of some Boondock Saints. Oh, yeah. uh, but let's be honest, that is not a well-made movie. That is very no. clear. It's on a budget, and it is, uh, yeah. So the reverence that everybody has for the first one, I get it. I love it too. The sequel's just as much fun. Yeah. Just as much fun. The only thing you don't get is Willem Dafoe overacting every single scene he's in. You know. <laughs> Um, you do, however, get Clifton Collins Jr. as Romeo, who we mentioned in our quote earlier, uh, and some great moments like, um, I can't remember which one of the McManus brothers it is, but he tries the, he tries the drugs and he goes, oh, it's heroin. And he goes, how the fuck do you know it's heroin? (laughs) I was like, I watch TV. (laughs) You know, kind of bring it back to that same vibe of these these boys learn everything I know about being vigilantes from watching television. So, um, yeah, I am with you on on Boondock Saints too. All right, so my number five, uh, I'm bringing a little little more prestige with it. Die Hard with a Vengeance, the third Die Hard movie, and arguably the best of the Die Hard sequels. Uh, it's actually the first Die Hard movie I ever saw. Really? Yes, you know how much I love the first Die Hard. Yeah. Die Hard with a Vengeance came out when I was a kid, and there was something about the concept of a cop teaming up with an antique shopkeeper or a pawn shopkeeper 
running around New York City in a cab trying playing Simon Says with a terrorist. <laughs> uh, Bruce Willis is great in it because he keeps bringing that. He, like he's an even worse. Like so, we talked about characters progressing. Mm-hmm. Die Hard Two does nothing for me on that front because he's the exact same character he was in Die Hard One. Yeah. In Die Hard Three, however, he's gone full blown alcoholic. Like, and he's back in New York, so he's back in his hometown. Yeah. Uh, first one being in L.A. at Nakatomi Plaza. The second one being in D.C. at Dulles Airport. Now we're back in New York City, so you get a broader expanse. Uh, but they team him up with Samuel L. Jackson, and of course Samuel L. Jackson brings it everywhere he goes. <laughs> Dropping yes. the like, like one of my favorite moments in that movie is um, so, like I said, they're playing Simon Says with this terrorist. The terrorist is actually uh, Hans, Simon Gruber, who is Hans Gruber's brother from the you know, the first film. Mm-hmm. He's played by Jeremy Irons. So he's playing Simon Says, and basically he, they have to go all over the city defusing bombs. Well, as the first thing that, that they make John McClane do is basically they they demand him. They don't they don't want any other detective or street cop or whoever. They want John McClane. So that, you already know something's up. But they make him go into the streets of Harlem, which is predominantly African American, standing out there in a wife beater and his boxers with a gun taped to his back like in the original, but this time he has a sign around his his neck, his front and his back, one of those big A-frame signs. That says I hate the N word, like, and it says the N word. Just I hate blank. Yeah. And he's standing out in the middle of Harlem wearing this thing. And Samuel L. Jackson goes out there, and of course, because he sees he sees he sees dumbass drunk John McClane doing the stupid. He doesn't know what's going on, and then he sees group of big old black dudes hanging out like on the stoop of this this one building. Yeah. And he goes out there. He knows. He knows that these dudes are going to kill this white boy, this cracker, over the sign. And he could say, "No, just just let him. Just let him wipe his hate, white not supremacist ass." Right. Just let him, them wipe his white supremacist ass out. And he doesn't. He goes out there to say, "Hey, you need to move on." And that's actually one of my favorite sequences because that's when those two meet up. They immediately hate each other because of this <laughs> sign. And McLean's like, I really don't care. I'm just having a real bad day and I've got a really bad hangover. <laughs> so, and the movie just progresses from there. So it's, it's again, it's a great, like, just action thriller one. If it didn't have Die Hard name to it, it would still be a good movie. But two, just the chemistry between uh, Bruce Willis and Samuel L. Jackson is just fantastic. Like, it is off the charts. I Like, if they paired them up again for a sequel, I would not be mad about <laughs> it. All right, so that's our number five. Number four for me, we're going to another third part of a series, Back to the Future Part 3. Nice. I know everybody goes back to Part 2 because 2015 just happened a few years ago, so we're all talking about well, where's our flying cars and where's our hoverboards and where's Jaws 17 and all this other stuff. And I get it. Like, there's a lot of cool stuff. Like, 1985, or, sorry, 1989 hey, you got the version. Coach winning the World Series. Yeah, they That's were a year right. late, but they were close, you know. Uh, they got the, they, if they had the Royals in there, that would have been dope. So, oh, uh, but the, they were a year behind on the, on the Cubbies. So, uh, which, and that's still one of my favorite jokes in that movie. Uh, it really is. But, like, you know, not only do they so in two, you know, they set all this stuff up, and it's 1989 because that's when the film was made. 1989's version, 
of what 2015 would be. So 30 yeah. years from the original. Obviously, we're not there. Yeah. However, they go back in part three. They go back to 1885. Yeah. I love westerns. So I am a sucker for <laughs> westerns. I am a sucker for the cowboy motif. But there is something far more challenging and interesting about having to get a gas-powered, nuclear-powered time machine from 1885 back to 1985 yeah. without gasoline or nuclear power. Yep. And there's the challenge. Not to mention you also get the love story between uh, Doc Brown and, and Claire Clayton. Um, you know, and then also uh, Michael J. Fox is Marty, you know, kind of learning to grow up in that same thing. Um you know, he, he's already learned and cause, cause it's the second half of a two part story at that point with, yeah. with part two, you know, learning that just cause somebody calls you chicken or yellow does not mean you have to respond. So there's a lot of growth in there for his character as well that you don't get in part two, like you do in part three. So that's why part three plus one of my favorite lines in there is like, uh, so I, I wear my Nikes and like, so my dad and I, we wear Nikes and we'll look at each other and I'll just go, what is it? Knee K. Is that some kind of engine word? Like stupid shit like that, you know? <laughs> anyway, it's a, it's, it's, it's a childhood favorite and that's why I go back to it every time. So, all right, you're number four. John Wick 2. I can't argue with it. I debated between two and three and I ultimately went with two because okay. it was, it, it, it was the surprise. Like, we were in, I'm pretty sure we went into it being like, okay, sequels are never as good as the original, but mm-hmm. see if it's decent. And that was, I remember walking out of it and both were like, how in the world do they make it better? Right. Like, how did, how? So I feel like two set the stage for us to enjoy three as much as it did. And yeah. it was the first time that they introduced this kind of world building and expansion upon this world that they, they kind of gave us the hint at right. in the first one. And this is the first time they were like, Okay, well, here's this world that we're yeah. set in to set it up for the third one. Be like, okay, here's another aspect of this world. Right. So, yeah. Two two gives us a lot of the rules that they play by, yeah. and I think that's what's really cool about it. Um, plus, when I in, in our for the Lo- love of dog episodes, I mentioned I love that whole sequence in the subway area where John Wick and I can't remember his name, the Commons character. Mm-hmm. Are just shooting at each other back and forth like they're shooting spitballs at each other, but you know they're using forty five caliber rounds. Yeah. Um, not to mention every action sequence in that is stunning. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. And it, and it opens so fast paced with you know him getting because he didn't get the car back at the end of one. He doesn't get it back till the beginning of two, and he messes that car up just to get the car back. Yeah. Like that is all about principle, and I appreciate a man of principle. Um, so I, I can't even argue your, your number four spot there with John Wick chapter two. Like that is, that is a solid sequel. And that is exactly what we're talking about. When we want to say, we want a sequel that respects the original and expands on what we learned from the original, um, that kind of world building. All right. So number three glass. Ooh. So a more recent choice. Yes. Okay. Um, cause I, I, I think because I went in not really knowing where they were going to go with it. Like they gave so little away in the trailers mm-hmm. and then watching it, it was just so fascinating to watch. Right. Like I love how much he went for like the psychology angle of mm-hmm. it all with the, the whole series to be honest, but yeah, especially in glass. Well, and, it's, and just that little twist ending that, you know, 
you're never going to get any more of just that kind of little sprinkle of, oh, there's this organ. Okay. Yeah. Here's this yeah. little tidbit of information and go on your merry way. Go well, on. take it, it, take it with that, what you will. Right. Well, and it, it, and by doing that, validating what we as the audience suspected all along that they never confirmed until right then there. Yeah. Um, I am with you. That is the one thing I like. I loved about Glass. I loved about all three films. And finally, letting James McAvoy just do what he does best. Like in in Split, he talked about how many more characters he came up with that they ended up cutting or not using at and all. And let him use. And then in Glass, they were just like, you know what? Use it. Do it. Run with it. Yeah. And he does. Like James McAvoy is just fantastic, and the fact that he didn't get any sort of recognition at all from um, Split, which is yeah. tragic. And then here comes Glass, and he's just proving why he should have gotten recognition, because he's just fantastic. So, funny side story about Glass. Uh, I'm leaving work the other day. Miriam's working. Uh, sorry, I probably shouldn't have used her name, but uh, Miriam, one of our kitchen people, is in the back. She's got her back to me when I walk in. And I couldn't help myself. I just walk in and I go, woo! And she goes, ah! You know how Miriam does. Uh, and she's like, oh my God. I'm like, I, I couldn't help myself. And she she starts going, you got me. And I go, almost got you, bro! Like, that's my favorite bit from Glass. It's so stupid. I shouldn't enjoy that part as much as I do, but I do. Because it's just because it's this, this not quite proper Scotsman, but, you know, yeah. doing doing the straight up, Jersey Shore type of dude, bro, bullshit. Yeah. Uh, I, I, so yeah. So with regards to Glass, though, uh, what I loved about it, and what I loved about all three of those films, Unbreakable and Split, as well, is that they're all so different from each other. Yeah. Unbreakable is uh, it's like a straight drama, you know, thriller ish. Yeah. Um, that by the end of it, you realize, oh my god, this is a superhero origin story. It yeah. totally twisted me for a loop. Yeah. Split plays like a straight-up suspense psychological thriller about a dude yeah. with, with multiple personalities. And you know what turn, starts off as a horror movie turns out to be the origins of a supervillain. Yeah. Um, and, I, and, and I like that they never played it with, with him being straight-up. Like, with Unbreakable, there's very clear heroes and villains. Right. But with when you introduce Kevin Wendell Crumb, yeah, and all of the personalities come away, it's Lord, never yeah. straight up. This is a villain. It's this is a person that has several different personalities, some of which are trying to be good, and some yeah. of which are just straight up evil. And he's kind of where Unbreakable introduced a very black and white world with Split and going into Glass introduced a very much gray area. Yes. Like I said, they play with the psychology of it. And in life, there there's very little, this is a straight-up hero, this is a straight-up villain. And even the ones we think of that are, you learn that there's more to it. Like, people that in history that are portrayed as just straight-up heroes, you learn about their seedier sides to it. Yeah. And, people, like, when you have a straight-up villain in history that people like to be like, oh, here's them as a child. People don't like it because they don't want to think of these, these, you know, awful historical figures as human. But it is. And I yeah. think that's what I love so much about class is that people want to be like, oh, the beast, the beast is evil. I'm like, well, not the beast, maybe, but what about these other personalities? And what about poor Kevin Crumb that was really just an abused kid that just right. kind of got screwed over? And 
I, that's, I think that's what I love so much about it. Yeah. Is that it's like, this isn't as black and white as everyone likes to think it is. Yeah. Humans aren't black and white like everyone wants no, to think No, no. And, and I feel like that's what those movies did was play with the human condition so well. Yeah. All right. So that was your number three. Yeah. My number three, honestly, you're probably going to be surprised that I didn't put it as my number one or my number two. It's Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> I knew it. Uh, so we talked about the great sequels that do whatever. Empire is obviously part of, of an entire story. But it does a lot of the things I say a sequel needs to do. And that is it expands on, on what we already know. It advances the character story. Han Solo is not quite as heroic as he, he you know, kind of gets portrayed at the end of the original Star Wars as. You know, when we meet him in, in Empire... He's come back, he's helped the rebellion, and he's like, okay, I've got to check out now because I need, I need to go. I've got to go for my own personal interest. And he winds up sticking around again to help the rebellion because his friends are there. You know, this is, this is really the only thing he's got worth fighting for. Yeah. Like, honestly, if, if Empire had just been a straight-up Han Solo story, I would have been okay with it. <laughs> But at the same time, we've got to get Luke through his training with Yoda. I am a Han Solo fanboy, but I acknowledge that the sequel is great because it's not just about Han Solo. Again, if it was all about Han Solo, (laughs) all over it, but it's not. Because so so you have this story with Han. You have Luke who is struggling, you know, to get through Jedi training and, you know, not succumb to the dark side. Um, And of course, eventually finds out that Darth Vader is his father. Like, the movie ends on a huge cliffhanger and a huge twist. Um, And even Leia. Leia is struggling with some of her decisions as, as, you know, part of the rebellion. Um, And having to escape and going on this adventure with Han and realizing that, yeah, she is in love with him. Um, You know, even after being introduced to him in the first one, they're like, they are not meant to be together. Um, But yeah, the, the, the... Empire does everything that a good sequel should. It, I, I honestly think a good sequel should probably go darker in tone because you've already kind of set up everything. So now you can kind of play with consequences from those actions. That's why John Wick 2 and 3 succeed so well. Yeah. Um, Iron Man 3 I love because it plays with those consequences of what happened in the Avengers. Um, it does all those things. And like I said, it advances the story forward and it doesn't feel like the exact same movie that we just saw. True. So that's why Empire's at number three. It probably ought to be at number one. But this is personal opinion. This is not and like I love Empire. Empire's not one that I can sit down and watch every single time. Like I can watch one and I can watch three over and over again because they end on happier notes. Empire doesn't. It ends on a down note. Han Solo gets captured, Luke loses a hand, finds out Darth Vader's his dad, which that's, you know, all kinds of problematic. Leia's kind of dealing with a diminished rebellion. Everything's looking dour for, for our friends. So, um, but that's everything that a good, if you're doing a trilogy, that's everything a good sequel should do. Period. Yeah. So, that's my number three. Number two, again, probably ought to be number one, The Dark Knight. You're going you're gonna to laugh when you get, get to my number one. So, number two, no, Dark I'm Knight. I'm laughing because Dark Knight is also my number two. Sweet. Let's talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> So again, does everything. So it, it, like I said earlier, it does what what a good sequel does. It it also changes the format of the film itself. It's still a superhero movie, 
but it feels more like a crime drama than anything. That's why Captain America the Winter Soldier works is because it's not a it's not another war movie with with a superhero. It's now a spy thriller featuring a superhero. Yeah. Um, you know, we deal with the consequences of our actions from Batman Begins in this one. We deal with the fact that we have uh, a villain who unlike a lot of other villains who you find out their motivations and they're kind of empathetic this one's not and this is this is one of those rare instances where where i feel like a villain should not be empathetic at all yeah. uh the joker is that case because he is an absolute he is a psychopath he just wants to cause chaos he just wants to you know just show that the world is not the facade that we all think it is uh, that's his only agenda and if by all means he's you know like he is determined to break the bat do everything he can yeah um you know that movie that movie does for superhero movies what he did for crime thrillers and there's a lot of inspiration from one to the other um and that's why I love it so much like again it's heavy I don't go back Heath to it very Ledger's often. Iconic Heath Ledger's performance is fantastic and I'm still a Jack Nicholson Joker fan but that's because. The Dark Knight is so heavy as a sequel yeah. that, like, I enjoy it and I will watch it when it's on or I will turn it on, but I have to be in the mood for it. Yeah. Batman, the original Batman with Jack Nicholson and Michael Keaton, I'm going, I can watch it anytime. Yeah. It's good. It's good soul food for, for, for a movie fan. Yeah. But Dark Knight just does everything right. Yes. Anything I agree. That's it? Nothing else? Terrible. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, we've both done our number two. Ladies, I'm going to let you go with your number one. What's your number one choice? You already know because we argued about it. Yes, we did. Winter Soldier. Of course it is. Don't even try to fight me on it. Go ahead. We had an argument whether it counts as a sequel, whether it should count for this top five. Um, We already know who won this argument. So... (sighs) It's not that you want, it's that I let you. <laughs> Stop. So I love it because we get Cap's origin story in First Avenger. And like we talked about earlier, First Avenger is, it's kind of like Glass. First Avenger is very black and white. There's, he, he kind of becomes a superhero in this very black and white world of Nazis are bad. Allies are good. I just want to go help my country. Okay, sure, being a you know show pony in the USO is, is not great, but he found his way and he figured out a way to help. And you know, the he he goes and he saves Bucky and he becomes this you know positive figure and he's helping you know the war cause and everything's great. And then with Winter Soldier, he wakes up to this world that is not only completely strange to him because it's seventy years in the future, but he's he also learns over the course of this movie that. Things are not as black and white as he always believed to be. He discovers that one of his enemies is, quote unquote, is his oldest friend. And so he's torn between, you know, these people that are telling him, you can't save this one. You have to take him out. And him having to choose, do I do I take out my oldest friend or do I save him? And also learning that these people that he has counted as friends and allies and as the quote unquote good guys are not as not good guys. Yeah. They're, they're actually Hydra the whole time and having to learn that even the ones that aren't Hydra, the ones that are still, you know, quote unquote on the side of good 
are trying to make choices that aren't good and kind of having to, I think it's when Captain America becomes Captain America. It's when he figures out where his moral compass truly lies right. and where his line in the sand is. And he learns that everything's not so black and white, that there is gray area and you have to learn where in the gray area you're, you have to put your foot down yeah. and say, no, this isn't, I'm not okay with this anymore. Yeah. I agree. And I can watch that movie anytime, anywhere. I've watched it so many times. If it's on TV, I will stop it's and I true. will watch it. It's just the right amount of heavy that if it's on TV, I can turn it on. And, if and I, that elevator fight scene. Dude, that elevator fight scene is Come so on. dope. Oh, I can't even be mad about that. The ele- if you give me, if you say you have to pick a, a movie based on just one fight scene alone, Winter Soldier might be it. <laughs> Skyfall might be the other one for the uh, the Shanghai skyline fight that's just beautifully shot. Uh, yeah, yeah, I I'm not, I give you shit, but I you I can't, can't fight me on it. I can't fight you on it. So even taken without out of the context of the MCU, it's still just a great film. Yeah, it is. It is, and I, and it does the exact it does the things that I said that Dark Knight does, and that's like I said, turns everything on its head. So uh, my number one. Here we go. And I know it's not better than the original. Like, that's the, that was the point. Like, everything else I could go, I could make a case for it being better than the original, except for maybe Back to the Future Part 3. Uh, and even Die Hard. Ghostbusters 2. <laughs> it does what a sequel shouldn't do, in that it resets, and I said this earlier, it resets what the Ghostbusters have done. They get forgotten about. They're sued by the city. They're not allowed to be Ghostbusters anymore. They have to basically start back over. It does what a... Oh, man. It does what a good sequel says you shouldn't do. However, it does. I'm sorry, Ru. I gotta clean up the mess here. It does, however, do something a good sequel should do, which is go a little darker. Um, Vigo the Carpathian might be one of my favorite villains of all time. There's something about a painting being a villain, a piece of art. <laughs> being the villain of your film that is just it sounds stupid on paper but when you see it in action yes it works obviously they bring back ghosts everything is going wrong all over new york city there's this whole supernatural event that is just causing everything to go to shit real quick uh and there's the whole idea of of basically a ghost excuse me a ghost possessing a baby to come back so that way it can rain terror on our planet for a thousand years. Like, that's heavy shit. <laughs> and so the fact that, that this PG-rated sequel that's not as good as the original goes that direction, yeah. kind of like my, my same thing about Temple of Doom. I don't think it's as good as, and it's a prequel, it's not as good as Raiders of the Lost Ark, but damn it, it it does what what you should or what they say you shouldn't do with the sequel, and it goes darker. Yeah. Um, Bill Murray's still great in it. I actually love the chemistry between Dan Aykroyd and uh, Harold Ramis in this one. Mm-hmm. And I've talked about it before: the chemistry between uh, Annie Potts and Rick Moranis as she's sitting there being far more forward with him than she had been with with yeah. Egon in the first one. Um, you know. And Sigourney Weaver is great in it too. Like, uh, and yeah. uh, like, I said, there's there's so many more moments in there. One of my favorite moments, and it terrified me as a child, but uh, I, it still 
like I get ha- happy about it today because it's actually pretty freaky. It was when three of the four Ghostbusters are down in the subway. It's uh, it's Ray, Egon, and Winston. They're all down in the subway and or in the old subway tunnel trying to find the river slime. Mm-hmm. And the the heads on pikes start popping up. The ghost train shows up that almost runs them over or that runs through Winston. Like terrifying shit. <laughs> it's one of my favorite moments. And like I actually referenced probably Ghostbusters 2 probably more than I ought to. I hate going to Walmart. Like this is how much of an impact that movie's made on my life. I hate going to Walmart. I am actually convinced to this day that underneath every Walmart supercenter across this great nation, there is a pond of pink slime. And I am convinced one day it is going to get so concentrated that it is actually going to start pouring out of our sinks and trying to eat us like it did the baby Oscar in this film. That is how much of an impact Ghostbusters 2 has had on my life. I know it's not better than the original. I don't give a damn. I love Ghostbusters 2. The end. All right. That's going to do it for us this week. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Uh, if you uh, hit the subscribe button, please, uh, whether you're using Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, uh, Radio Radio Public, uh, Podbean, and I feel like there's one other one that we're on. Um you know, Spotify. Spotify is the other one. We're on Spotify. Good God. Um, check us out. Hit the subscribe button. Keep tuning in. Follow us on Facebook at My Drunk Movie Theater or on Twitter at Drunk underscore Theater. Um, I'm trying to figure out more of the social media aspect, what I need to do. Um, uh, if you guys start contacting me, we'll respond. Um, I'd love to incorporate tweets and stuff into the show. Uh, now, that being said, I said last week I wasn't going to reveal what we were going to do the following week. However, I'm going to make it work this week because uh, I've already got people signed on for it. This week, we're bringing back, because we got Child's Play and uh, Toy Story 4. Toy Story 4 we know is going to be good because re- reviews are already coming out and it's already great. Short Child's Play is what's coming back. We're bringing back the Pitch Me a Remake game. <laughs> and I can't wait to play it again with our with our our cast of contestants so tune in next week check it out we're gonna have a blast uh thanks for listening thanks for joining us at my drunk movie theater i'm kyle sutton i'm trisha campbell and good night goodbye